Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Dr. Helen Williams, and I tell you what, this is another absolute cracker. But just before we dive into that, a quick word from our brand new sponsors. Cue the fancy music. The Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is proudly sponsored by Boss Maths. Boss what? I hear you say. Well, if you've listened to any of the conference takeaway podcasts with Joe Morgan, then you'll know that she cannot stop banging on about this wonderful site. Boss Maths is the brainchild of Sudeep, who explains that his last school was an iPads for all school, with few real textbooks and a very limited budget for printing worksheets, something I can certainly relate to. So teachers thus had to endure the ridiculousness that was getting students to log in to an online copy of the textbook, requiring at least five taps and five corresponding page loads after logging in, plus all the hassle of kids forgetting their passwords and so on, and then constantly needing to zoom in and zoom out to do any work because the online textbook was not optimised for most kinds of electronic display. Needless to say, Sudeep School were paying a hefty amount for what he considered to be a retrograde step from actual printed textbooks. Hence, Sudeep started Boss Maths in February 2015, mainly with the intention of giving his classes a more user-friendly online resource from which he could set written homework tasks. His experience at his previous school is the reason for his keenness to have free, login-free access to student-facing content on the website. But in a world of hundreds, if not thousands, of maths resource websites, what is so special about Boss Maths? Well, firstly, the range of free resources available in one place is incredible. It includes practice exercises, spot the misconception exercises, exam style problems from topics across the GCSE, and for many topics, there are even helpful GeoGebra applets too. Then there's the user-friendliness features such as short and simple URLs for every page, which is dead helpful for teachers and students working in school that insist on giving every student a tablet or a laptop. God, we've all seen that. It takes them ages to type in the address. A short, friendly URL is dead, dead useful for that. Then there's the fact, and this is a massive one for me, there's no usernames and passwords required to log into access to free content. So no more kids forgetting their username, their password, losing 10 or 15 valuable minutes at the start of the lesson, getting them going. And finally, and I really love this, there is a smart search box that really helps students and teachers get straight to what they're looking for, even if the search terms don't exactly match the topic title. Now, I only accept sponsors to this show from products and services that I've tried myself and fully believe in, and hence why I have absolutely no hesitation in suggesting that you check out 
Boss Maths. So just head over to bossmaths.com to check out this wonderful site where you'll find a really, really helpful demo video to show you all, all the wonderful features and get you going. That's bossmaths.com. <laughs>
And I'll be reflecting more upon this and other things in my takeaway at the end of the show. Now, if you're listening to this interview just before Christmas and struggling for the perfect gift for Granny, Mum, Auntie Joan or the dog, then I can recommend How I Wish I Taught Maths by this clueless podcast host. And if your nearest and dearest already own a copy, and I'm I'm assuming that they do, then you can support this podcast by leaving a review wherever wherever you get your podcast from, or, and I really like this option, by recommending an episode to your colleagues. It just helps the audience keep growing. Thanks so much for your support on all this. Anyway, let's get cracking. As I know this is an interview many of you have been looking forward to for ages, myself included. So, without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Helen Williams. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Helen. So, welcome to the podcast. And we start, as ever, with your three math speed dating questions. So, question number one, what is your favourite number and why? So, uh, first of all, I thought, well, I don't have a favourite number because I don't I don't think I ever have had a favourite number. But um, as I was walking the dog this morning, I I started to think about actually, I think I might want to say 11 because um, because really that should be one to one shouldn't it really because that's the <laughs> beginnings of the move into sort of place value that um i think is di- very difficult i've experienced the difficulty working with children trying to get to grips with that so and it comes from the old english which means one and something so that's i think that's fascinating and quite a lot of languages i think switch to teen after 12 um and there's this business about and then i thought well maybe it's 12 because um 12s I love 12 because it does all sorts of things and so I love working with 12 with children so we can look at two sixes six twos three fours and all of those things and the next time you get a rich number like that it's kind of 24 isn't it so there you are I like wow, it. That <laughs> no, I, I like it. it. Yeah, and I mean, we're gonna we're gonna dig into the minefield of of just trying to teach students uh, to introduce them to numbers as this conversation progresses. But yeah, I'd imagine trying to explain why on earth that the the number system that they're really comfortable with all starts to go a bit weird whenever they hit eleven and twelve, and then the teens come in. Yeah, I I imagine that's a, that's an interesting uh, point in a, in a child's mathematical journey. Um, lo- lovely answer. And what, well, question number two then. What was your favourite? topic in maths as a student well here you go because I didn't like maths at all at school um I was I didn't do well at it I found it hard so I didn't have a favorite topic but when I started to teach it and when I started going to meetings with maths teachers I just love most of geometry now but I didn't because um uh, I didn't feel confident and a lot of it I think Bernie Westcott referred to this about a lot of his learning, his teaching that he had experience was very much about rote learning. Mm. And that's exactly what my experience was. And I didn't feel that it was anything to do with me at all. Um, that's, that's so interesting. But you but now would you would you call yourself a, a maths fan, a maths lover now, Helen? Have, yeah, yeah that... I do love it. I, I mean, I've got massive holes in my in my in my knowledge I, or and I've, I have you know, I have a confidence issue, but I just love it. And um, 
yeah, there's a failing there somewhere in how I was taught, I think. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, again, maybe that'll be something we, we dig into later on. That the super and final speed dating question for you, Helen. If you weren't involved in education, what would you like to do? Well, I guess <laughs> I'm going to have to say it this way around. I think I'd probably like to work with animals. <laughs> with some, some might say that. <laughs> That's what we're kind of doing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I... I um. I don't I don't really like to think about what what would have might you know what I just think you know wishing you were something else is is a bit of a waste of time really I mean I never even thought there was such a thing as a marine biologist but I guess that would have been lovely <laughs> <laughs> nice that's a good a good positive attitude that yeah it's, it's the classic paradox of choice if there's too much on offer you, you end up always thinking about what might have been I, I like that super well I'll tell you what and let's dig into your career then if that's all right so just just take us through from start wherever you want and just take us through to, to where you are today <laughs> if that's all right okay so um so I'm, I'm I'm kind of retired now or heading that way so it's quite a long way so I've tried to sort of <laughs> I think what the main points in it were really that have influenced where I am now. So uh, I did a sociology degree and then I did a PGCE where I trained to teach three to nine year olds. Uh, my first job was with first year, first year juniors, uh, now known as year three. So eight year olds. I had a class of them. Uh, then I had various teaching jobs in various schools teaching from reception to year six having classes of reception to year six I don't I think the only year group that I haven't taught a class of for any length of time is year five actually um but um uh, what was the next step so I started uh, a master's uh, my MPhil in the I think it was 86 and that and John Mason was my tutor nice and, um yeah so that was really pivotal for me so I uh, was looking at my reception year one learners and my and my the title was tuning into young children. So that was huge for me. So I, that that was sort of, uh, late 80s. And then I was um, uh, taken into the uh, math advisory team uh, part time in uh, where I lived. Uh, so I was teaching in my classroom and then out doing starting to advisory work. And that was part of a team. And. Um, on that team was Colin Bamwell, who you probably have heard of. He wrote Starting Points, uh, which is quite a big maths education book. Um, and he worked with me. So that was, again, that was that, that was quite pivotal for me and, and changed a lot of the ways that I thought about maths, learning and teaching. Uh, so I spent a few years in the advisory team. I moved to full time in there and then. Uh, then back in, uh, then what happened? Then I then I was freelance because of course they re you know they closed the team, mm. they kept restructuring it, so I went freelance. Uh, and then since then I've worked in uh, in a local school teaching maths right the way through and supporting teachers. And then in 2010 I did my PhD with Sue Gifford at Roehampton. So um, that was that was quite a big. That was quite a big, that was a huge step for me as well. So for me, that sort of cl closed a lot of ends off, tied a lot of ends off for me. You know, I did a lot of reading that I've been sitting there thinking, I really must read this. I really must get to grips with this. Um, so that, yeah, there we are. Does that do it for you? That's fancy. Yeah, that is uh, fantastic. And lots of, uh, lots of kind of inspirational people that you've been lucky enough to work with um, along yep. the way. That's, that's superb. That yeah. Well, yeah. Um, before we kind of dig into the, the meat of the interview, one of my favourite questions to always ask guests is, is a favourite failure. So I wonder if you could have a think back to a, a teaching experience or whatever you want that, that didn't quite go according to plan and, and crucially what you learned from it, Helen. Okay, so can, can um, so this was um, 
Yeah, I think it's interesting to consider it as a failure because looking at it, I think all the time there is something that goes wrong when I mm. teach all the time. And those are the moments that make me really reflect on how I on how I work with 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 children. Um, and when you say it doesn't go according to plan, uh, I I try to I try to think about what planning for the unexpected. I try and keep that in my what I'm working with, with when I'm working with children, keep it in my mind. So I don't in that sense, I don't think anything really goes to plan. <laughs> um, and I've learned quite early on that that is a much more effective way for me to get the learners to operate mathematically is for me to not it plan too tightly and too much. Um, having said that, I think what what made that happen the first time um, was was in my very first class of seven and eight year olds where this a little chap had we'd been doing uh, some uh, learning about subtraction using unifix cubes. Are you OK with those? Those are the interlocking coloured sort of two centimetre cubes. Yes, I th- all, all the same, all the same size. All, yeah, all yeah, the same, exactly. All two centimetres, but they only connect on one side. So you're yes, got it. So we were... I was we, I was teaching subtraction and we were doing this and this little chat you know we'd spent I don't know 40 minutes with a working on it as a group he was nowhere near it so I kept him in at playtime to sort of drill him a little bit further on it and see if I could get him to the point that everybody else was and um, we spent playtime doing doing a bit of this he was fine with that and because they're very you know malleable at that age and happy to sit there with me while we went through it all again and at the end, you know, I looked at my watch and thought, oh, gosh, you know, you, you know, you can get 10 minutes to play if I finish now. So I said to him, so. So I said, so what do we got here now in front of us, having carefully modelled, you know, the whole subtraction process? And he went, he looked for a minute and he blinked and he said, unifix cubes. <laughs> and that, you know, and I said, OK, off you go. Go to play. And <laughs> that taught me a lot <laughs> about what I would call leading somebody through the, by the nose without them being anywhere with you at all actually <laughs> that's very interesting and just just like, what 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 would you have done differently Helen um well I mean that was an incredibly long time ago and I can't remember exactly what it was that I was doing I think I would now if I was approaching subtraction I would set up lots of different um um I think, you know, I think I'd almost call it variation now, actually, having read a little bit on variation theory. I would set up lots of different experiences where the children were able to see what was happening and talk to me about it. And then gradually we would draw that out, exactly what was happening there. Because subtraction, you know, isn't just about taking away. There's, you know, there's differences, all those other things they have to know about subtracting. Um, so I think what I was trying to do was to get him sort of to fill in the answer to my to my question um to fill in the gaps rather than really think about it and really talk about it and saying what they and saying what he saw and what he's actually seeing in front of him That's and therefore mm, sorry no on. no just say yeah it's it's fascinating yeah fascinating that and again it's just yet another example of um of something that like, like the concept of subtraction for, for me as a, as a secondary school teacher and i'm not generalizing here i'm not saying all secondary school teachers are as naive as me but 
I just, I don't even think too much about it. It just seems to me, well, you know, you just subtract one number from, from the other. But again, when students encounter that for the first time, that that's a huge concept. And there must be, there must be so many of these kind of fundamental concepts that, that you as a primary school teacher and particularly working with early years, that you're the kind of guide, guiding light for, for students' first experience of these, these massive concepts. And there's a lot of responsibility, isn't it, Helen? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, I, I mean, I'm ju- sort of jumping over a little bit, but I think it's relevant here is that the, um, one of the big, I mean, you are, you, you talk, we can talk a little bit about later about difficulties and misconceptions. One of the big steps for very young children is, is the business about, the, about quantity and number. Quantities and numbers are not the same thing. Um, we can, I mean, numbers you, you use to measure quantity. But we can we we can actually have an awareness of quantity without actually having the measure for them. We can see if things are more or less than something else, and establishing those clear connections between um, numbers and quantities is is takes ages. So, for example, if you think about things like um, when you see numbers in the world, so I might see if look if I if you know this, Craig, you tell me, yeah. Oh God, no! <laughs> so, I, I assume in this interview, I Helen, I assume I know nothing, and we'll be safe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be accused of teaching somebody to suck eggs. Not but, at um, all. The uh, you know I might see a bus come along, and the bus will have eighty-one on it. That doesn't mean there have been eighty buses before it. You know, so that's nothing to do with quantity. That number. You know, I live at house eleven. Um, and that doesn't mean that doesn't necessarily mean there are 10 other houses in that row. There might only be five houses in that row and the others might be on the other side. Um, I, I take a shoe size of five. That doesn't mean I've got four other pairs of shoes. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. Yes. So the, the, this difference, the difference between number and quantity, is that yeah, right? It's, key. it's absolutely key. And establishing, though, the, the, helping to establish children realise all the relationships between that. And clear and a clear connection between it um, is key. I mean, I, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask is what you, you know, when we talk about young children, that's, it, it, you know, um, that's a huge, <laughs> that's a huge area. That mm. so I wanted to be clear with you, really, what you want, what you meant by young children. You know, what what age um, group are we talking about here? Well, this 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 is fascinating, Miss Helen, because um, as you know, when we when we met at BCME and we had a, br- a brief conversation about you possibly coming on the show, uh, you made the point that, um, and a, a few people have made the point to me about this that that I simply haven't had e- enough um, kind of primary school uh, colleagues um, to come on the show to, to be interviewed, and that that's a complete failing on my part. And something that I'm, I'm trying very hard to rectify because I, I simply don't know enough about um, how maths is taught at primary. I'm, I'm lucky enough to, to visit quite a few primary schools, but it's it's still not the same as being kind of in there in there five five days a week. Um, and I think that's true of, of a lot of secondary colleagues. But then the twist away from this is I think whenever you you talk to secondary colleagues about maths in primary school, the focus tends to be on year five and year six, um, and that's yeah. where because that's kind of the maths that that I as a secondary teacher can relate to. It's yeah. Where I start to see things I recognise in there, I start to feel a little bit more comfortable. But I tell you what, Helen, you go any younger than that, and I do not have a flipping clue. I do not have a flipping <laughs> clue what's going on. So I, I'm interested in kind of the 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 thing that will be most removed from my experience, and possibly that's going to make it the most useful, is is as young as as you can go, if okay. that makes sense. I'm very interested in where. All these fundamental concepts that the rest of maths relies upon a deep understanding of, 
where they get introduced, how they get introduced, what can possibly go wrong and all that kind of thing. That That's from my selfish perspective. Okay. That, that's what I'm interested in. D- okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it is. I mean, it, yeah, I, thank you. The um, I mean, internationally, uh, early years runs from naught till eight. So that internationally, that's accepted. That's the accepted bracket for early years. In this country, we are out on a limb starting our children in formal education at five. But I mean, that's a whole other issue. So when I talk about young children, I'm usually including up to the end of year two within that bracket, although I make it clear when I'm I try and make it clear because in this country it's so different the whole setup we haven't got a kindergarten setup we don't have that um, and our early years um, framework the statutory framework that we work to finishes at the end of reception and then key stage one starts so we have you know that's 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 difficult so um, but the, you know so when we talk when I was talking just now about quantity and number um, though that really takes from the eight from you know from birth when they start look thinking about things and you see you know babies holding up two they they recognize two very quickly because they can put one thing in each hand mm. and there's usually they recognize two and and there's more than two uh, and then from there that starts building up you know that's sort of pre-verbal almost and then it starts building up and really it takes four five years more than that probably probably four years from the age of about three two three before that quantity and number thing is sorted and sometimes it really isn't sorted terribly well and this is why you get sort of misunderstandings as they move into sort of key stage two that that hasn't those relationships haven't been haven't been formulated properly haven't been firmed up now uh, i mean as, as a word of warning home throughout this interview i'll be asking some questions that to you may seem absolutely stupid so but please 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 bear with me but here possibly comes the first one um so if we take something like something like three um and now i understand having listened to you just before there that that's that's the number three and it's the quantity three what do what do students is there a kind of preferred order for them to to understand that is it best if they see it as the number three or is it better if they see it as a quantity three or do they learn the two things together and then learn to distinguish between does that make any sense at all yeah no it's a good question and and you see i I think um underlying this is a you see i don't think learning is linear so all of these bits of learning all link up all have to link up and it's and it's a complex web of knowings about any number really and of course whilst children are learning uh, developing their ideas about quantity and what's more and less they're also learning to count Mm. so three has a position and it comes you know after after two and before four and then it appears you know in as a word further up the counting system um so uh, you know it appears in other numbers so i think that all of these things um are woven in together and so Accept, you have to accept that you can't sort of say to, you can't sort of say to parents don't don't, don't introduce them to the number three <laughs> yeah don't whatever you do <laughs> I, I did have a parent say to me once well they should ban digital watches and I thought well how's that going to work <laughs> in order they learn to teach time when they learn to teach time but I mean it's that business of this this, this stuff is creeping in it's my it's my job I think to help children make sense of 
how all of that links together. That's, so, that's, sorry to interrupt you. Have. That's a really interesting point that I'd never considered before. Because again, if I if I take my position as a secondary school teacher, if I'm teaching something like factorizing quadratics, the only time students are going to be exposed to that is probably in my lesson and in the work I yeah. give them to follow up. They're not going to be looking and a bus is going to go past with x squared minus 4x plus plus 12 on it or something like that. Or their parents aren't going to be just in a conversation. It's a quadratic is not going to just pop up randomly. But the concepts that you're you're teaching and um, kids are being exposed to them all the time. Right. As you say, just seeing numbers in the world, having conversations with parents. I assume it's also maths that parents are going to feel more comfortable engaging with as opposed to some of the maths that kids encounter at secondary school perhaps that they don't feel comfortable talking to students so I guess the positive is students are being more exposed to it all the time but I guess the negative side of that is that that can possibly lead to some kind of misconceptions or misinformation or incomplete knowledge would that be true? Um, I think I mean, I think you're right that it is all around the, all all around them, and and parents may, might feel more comfortable with it. I think I'd rather think about it as not misconceptions, but but leading to misconceptions. But I think that is a deep, a rich web of knowledge that I can tap into as a mm. teacher. I know they've met that. Now, parents actually don't feel very comfortable talking to their children about maths and numbers, even very young children. They don't feel comfortable about it. They say things like, oh, my God, I don't, you know, I wasn't very good at maths. Don't yes. worry about it, which is absolutely, you know, I, whenever I run a parents meeting, I say, whatever you do, if you do nothing else, please don't say this, especially <laughs> if you're a, especially if you're a woman to a daughter. You know, there's there's so much evidence to show that has a massive effect, obviously, on how that yes. child thinks about math. Um, so they aren't cut. They aren't that. Um, I don't think, know if they are that comfortable with it. However, on, you know, on the positive side, um, there's been I was reading some a piece of um, research lately, which I, I I wasn't aware of before. And so the business, if you think about counting and, and parents count, I mean, if they do nothing else with their children, they do count with them. They'll say, you know, one, two, three, four, five buttons or one or down and upstairs. You know, that's very, mm. very commonly done. Um, but what they don't tend to do is then draw the child's attention to the last number in the group, naming the whole quantity. So basically the child is going. So if you can imagine you've got you know, a row of four buttons in front of you there and I'm saying to you, right, we're going to count those buttons. One, and we touch each one and we move it. One, two, three, four. And, the, and then they'll and then they'll say and then the, the but the thing is, by saying four, you're actually naming that as a group of four, which is what mm. we were talking about. Yeah, about the link between quantity and number. Now, if I, what I do when I teach, I tend to say, so how many is that? And on the whole, the children will go, they'll count them again, actually. Very young children, you're talking reception and younger, will count them again because they think that's what I'm asking them to do. Yes. So I'm waiting for them to say four. You know, when I say, how many is that? They go four. You know, that's what I want them to do. Now, the piece of research I was reading late recently said the best way to approach this is to say at the beginning, wow, that looks like there's about five there. Should we give them, should we count them and see? So you're kind of drawing their attention to the, to the, um, to the, to the number naming the group initially before you start counting them. And that's far more effective, this research shows, than just counting them <laughs> and then saying at the end, there's five. That's really interesting. It is, isn't it? I found that really interesting. So I, you know, I'm, I can't wait to get in there. <laughs> <laughs> I never go at that. So, um, 
um, yeah, because I think I've probably done that, but I haven't done it. I haven't done it really. Um, haven't really focused on doing that before. That's fascinating. And geez, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I can't wait to dig into a bit a bit more here, Helen. Um, I wonder whether a good way of kind of framing this is is for you to kind of take us through. Um, a lesson in particular the kind of planning phases and 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 the decisions you'd make and, and what that lesson might look like and, and the reason I I love asking um, teachers and particularly experienced teachers this is because um, it just reveals so many insights of the different ways of approaching things and the different ways of thinking about things and it, it's I've, I've had some really varied answers to this so when Andrew Blair was on obviously he talked about an inquiry lesson when, when Helen Hindle was on she talked about a, a, in a mixed attainment class and it's when Chris Bonton was on he then he spoke about breaking it down into thir- atomizing it breaking it down to 13 and you uh, 13 uh, elements and using uh, direct instruction so it's always a varied answer so if you can just pick um pick either a topic or a class give us as much information as you can about that topic about the age of the students and so on and so forth and then just take us through your planning process from start to finish and i'll be annoying i'll keep interrupting at various points whenever i just either need a bit of clarity or, or have some questions and so on and so forth uh, would that be all right helen yeah we'll give it a go i did obviously have a think about what i was going to talk about here and um yeah i've got i've got something i think i can describe that I'm hoping sort of epitomises a little bit on, uh, you know, helps sort of give, give you a picture of working with, say, reception children. Oh, fantastic. Into fantastic. Sort of year, into sort of year one, year two. That's where I am with this particular. Let's do it. That sounds ideal. Let's go for it. OK, so the first thing is this isn't I'm not delivering anything. So this, this isn't a delivery method that I'm doing here. This is I'm structuring a series of um, lessons for for my group of learners so this is a, a suite if you like of lessons and I'll try and indicate when there's likely to be a break in the in the children's experience okay. so when I so when I plan it um I pick you know I, I so let's just this I mean number is key so let's just think it's, this is a number lesson mainly okay but I will in a minute mention how it might not be okay so <laughs> okay basically a number based it's a number based suite of lessons quite early on in my reception year. So I'm just, I'm getting to grips with remembering, of course, that I'm not just a maths teacher. So these children are doing all these other things with me as well as a reception teacher, all these other things. And I'm aware of them as individuals interacting with each other and sort of, and and beginning to get to grips with being in school. Mm. So there's all of that going on. So I want something that is going to show me expose if you like what their mathematical knowledge and confidence is what their number knowledge and confidence is so I can begin to work on that with them so this is one of these lessons okay or suite of lessons so um is that okay so far? that's perfect and just for the benefit of our international listeners we're talking reception so we're talking kind of four and five year old oh, yes. students yeah sorry yes we are and which and we, it is peculiar in the UK because that is actually a pre-statutory year group which is in statutory schooling. So children aren't statutorily expected to um, start school until they're after their fifth birthday, but we enter them in that reception year because we do not have a kindergarten system. Oh. And that's a particular beef of mine. <laughs> but that is for another podcast. That is, okay, yeah. We'll um, do that for the sequel. Okay, yeah, go I for it. Even, don't even start. <laughs> so, um, so, 
basically yeah, four and five year olds. So I, I like to think of it as what I've got in my head is so we're going to I want you to be working on this business that we referred to earlier about quantity and number. I want to be looking at that because that's key for that age group. Mm. Um, so um, I am my in my head. I've got some possible what I, I like to refer to as, as learning trajectories. Now, I think Bernie. Westercott referred to these because Sarama and Clements. Now, most of the research in early years maths ed is done in the States and um, Sarama and Clements work on learning trajectories is really interesting. And there's a very a free website which you can get onto called learningtrajectories.org where they've they've researched all the different threads, how how children um, the, the trajectory threads on, on children's development through various aspects of number and geometries. We're well worth a look. Um, so in my head, I'm thinking what the possible trajectory is in terms of the mathematics. I'm also thinking about what chart, what is this child likely to make of this? How is this child going to react to this? Where are we going to sit? We're going to sit on the floor, I think. You know, um, I'm thinking about how they will respond and how I'm going to get them into it. Um, so and I'm also also in my head, I'm 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 planning for what Marion Bird called in the early 90s, planning for foreseen possibilities. I think that's a lovely phrase. I like that. That's really nice. So this might happen or this might happen. So I've got some things up my sleeve. <laughs> so the whole can I, thing. Can I just sorry to interrupt at that point? Just just something you, again that you said there that would just not even enter into to my head as, as a secondary teacher. So. Like sometimes I'll make a decision whether the students will be kind of working on their own or they'll work in pairs or maybe we'll move the desk around and they'll work in groups. But you're chucking another into the mix, Helen, that they're working on the floor. What would <laughs> why, why why that decision? What what's what is it about this this lesson or this 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 um, concept that, that makes working on the floor um, relevant or, 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 or a decision that you, you want to make? Uh, well, for a start, four and five year olds are often more comfortable on the floor than they are sitting at a table and chair. Yes. Uh, everything. If I'm going to be using equipment and I and I definitely am, that's going to fall off the table. I, mean, I, don't, <laughs> want, I don't want any of that. I don't want their attention taken to any of that. I want their attention to be on the maths that we're going to do. So I'm going to I'm going to strip away any of those things that are going to interfere with that. And that is, you know, I've dropped my pencil. It's under my chair. I've got to get under the table to pick that thing up that's just fallen off. All of that's got to go. That's so, really interesting. And I, I guess the other thing I, I should have just clarified at the start, how, how many kids are we talking about here, Helen, roughly in this class? OK, so, well, I mean, the class could will have 30 in it. But Jeez. I mean, I would be I would be I might well be what I if it's a reception class, uh, I'm trying to decide how to start answering this. Um, sometimes it, I'll be doing something with the whole class, but sometimes I will set something up with a smaller group. This is definitely for a smaller group, mm. but so I so I might I might have um, what I would choose to do, especially at this end of the year. I would set it up and see who joins me. Oh, really? Now, that, yeah, I absolutely would because part, because and that happens often with reception classes that you set something up and see who comes because at the begin especially at the beginning of the year I'm looking to see who is who is even interested in doing this thing you know who is who is interested in this Jeez, that, what what are the, what are the rest of the students doing who who don't choose to come? You you probably need to be in a reception class. They could be doing all sorts of things. They could be on the bikes outside. They could be painting. They could be these children are four. 
So they could be doing any of those things. I mean, this is a really stupid question I'm going to ask now, Helen. I mean, we must be up to three or four of my, my daft ones here. But here comes another. Is this a timetabled maths lesson? Like, or is are there kind of discrete units of time that are lessons? This is set aside for maths. This is set aside for English. Just with you say, just with you saying that the students could be doing like painting or something else. How, how does that work? Well, the, the I mean, I have I have my timetable, so mm. I know I'm going to be teaching math, you know, what aspect of maths I'm going yes. to be teaching, but it might be at different times of the day with different groups. So I might I might select a group. I might have a group join me. I might do something. In fact, I probably will do something with the whole class at some point. Um, so I think that's a huge question um, uh, about the organisation of um of an early years classroom where children are able to move freely and choose what they do and how i monitor that as a teacher how i monitor observe that and use those observations to build on to build on some teaching episodes um and so that's kind of outside the maths really that takes place anyway in reception classes Um, i mean i'll tell you i always say i would be out of my depth in primary reception i'm not going anywhere near this helen this sounds absolute. this sounds unbelievable but but the thing but craig you 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 i think you i think everybody would could do with going into a reception oh sorry i don't mean i don't mean not going in i mean if you said to me tomorrow you're starting teaching in a reception class (laughs) the 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 parents would be withdrawing the kids left right and center i would be out of my depth yeah oh no I think you're being a bit hard on yourself. I think you you probably have to lie down in a dark room for a while afterwards. But I, I think the thing is, it's much more it's more fluid. It's you have to be responsive to what they what they're giving you, or you're not going to get anywhere at all. I remember saying to a child quite early on, um, uh, "Would you like to come and play this this dice game with me?" And they went, "No, I want to go and play in the sand." And I thought, "Well, I'm not going to say that again if I really want somebody to do something, do I?" I said, "I'd like you to, not would you like to." I mean, that was yes. a genuine. He answered it. You know, it wasn't a genuine question, was it? I was asking that child. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so I think that's. Uh, so anyway, so do you want to? Do you want? Is that all right? Should we? Go yeah, back? this is. Yeah, let's go back. Sorry, as I say, we'll be no doubt going on on numerous tangents, <laughs> but I'm just I'm trying to clarify things in my own no, no, head no, no, and also. Fine. Yeah, so that's perfect. So go back to yeah, go back to your kind of your, your thinking. And so your here I am process. now. Yeah. So I've got I've got I've got so I've planned for this now. Um, so just as an aside, well, you see, that, I think Bernie Westercott talked about doing things big and outside. Now, mm. Sue Gifford always talks about that. So everything that I might do um, with, with children inside, sort of small scale with tiny bits of equipment, I, I want to try and do that big and outside where they can jump and move and do all of those things and, and, so, and repeat those ideas in a different way, meet those ideas in a different way and practice it differently, if you like. Yes. So, um, but I'm indoors on this occasion or I might be sitting outdoors, but I've got a rug. Okay, I've got a tablecloth and onto it, I, I, I brought to the tablecloth um, a bag of, now these are butter beans and they're sprayed gold on one side. Okay. Okay. So can you imagine that? So, so butter, butter beans? Dried butter beans. Like food? Yeah. yeah. Oh, right. Oh, right. <laughs> I thought this was yet another manipulative I wasn't no, aware of. Right. No, butter this beans. It is a manipulative, <laughs> but it's obviously not a structured one. It's unstructured. Butter beans beans sprayed, what do you say, gold on one side? Gold paint. I laid them all out on the floor and sprayed them all gold on one side. Got it. I have no idea where this is going, but I'm Um, I'm with you, Helen. I'm with you. So anyway, these, um, I've got this bag of beans. Now these are really, it's a shame 
this isn't <laughs> you can't see these because they are beautiful and <laughs> as you run your hands through them they feel lovely they feel right. like they're very very tactile they're beautiful so um i know those are engaging because they're going to want to touch those so i'm i've got a this is a good place for me to start so i'm sitting at the rug i've got some kids around me and we we you know we tip them out or somebody tips them out and they start running their fingers through them and they're feeling them. And because they're all similar, if you like, they will begin doing things like lining them up and counting them. Well, the first thing that happens is I'm listening to what they're saying and I'm listening for things that I can respond to. Okay. Those two things is what was what I'm doing. And one child is going to say, I've got the mostest or they'll say something <laughs> along those lines. And then somebody else can go, I've got the most. Now I can, that you, can you feel what I'm going to say now? Yes. I'm going to say what? Well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking something like, how do you know? Or something yes, along exactly. those lines? That's a, that's a, perfect. That would be oh, the I perfect. Think, hey, I might be changing your career here, Helen. This is, yeah. I'm going to say, Craig, I see you in there. You'll be with your beans. You're going to be. <laughs> so, um, so I'm, I'm, we're away, really. So we can start then working on things like, I can be looking at them, counting, seeing if they've got the words in the right order, seeing if they're touching and moving the, accurately, because that's the other thing that they get. You know, they start if they start focusing on the words in the order too much, their finger loses track of what they're doing. Ah, right. So then they get the wrong amount at the end because they're focusing because there's so much to take it. There's so much to do there, isn't there? So yes. much to do. So um, so that's um, I'll be able to I can respond to all of that. And that might be enough for one day. That might be it. You know, and that might can, be it. Okay? Can, I ask, can I ask it here, Helen, at this point? Because I would imagine that um, you'd get quite... And ability isn't the right word here, but I'm just going to put it oh, in. Yeah. I, I don't know a better one to, to say at this stage. Um, I would imagine at that age of students, you're going to get a, quite a big range of ability. You're going to get some kids who have been kind of counting for for, for, for years. And also, I guess the um, the 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 month that kids are born has a quite dramatic effect in reception class. If you've got a September birth versus um, an August birth, just in terms of kind of experience and, and maturity and, and, and so on and so forth. And um, what are you doing there? If you've got a, a kid who's like, yeah, I, I can see I've got six and six is one more than five. And you've got another child who is nowhere near that kind of um, level or, or can't, can't engage with that at that stage. What, what does that look like, Helen, if that makes any sense at yeah, all? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think you've raised a couple of things that are really important. The, 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 obviously, it's a ratio thing. The children that are born in the summer are vastly, on the whole, they have, va you know, it is vastly different to the children that are autumn-born, the autumn-born babies, because it's a ratio thing, isn't mm. it? But, but obviously that, there's all sorts of other things that mitigate that. And that's to do with your home experiences and all of those things and the amount of language you've heard. Um, so, yes, I think in terms of I don't like to use the word ability at all. And, and thank you for bringing that up, because I think ability smacks of something that's fixed. And I yes. know that if I thought that, then why would I teach? Why would I bother teaching at all, actually? So um, I know. So I, I, I talk about I try and I. I talk about mixed attainment you know in, in Helen Helen Hindle's sort of way of referring to it, if you like but in this situation it's not really that it's, it's really the range of experiences you're right that those children are bringing to that to bringing to the tablecloth if you like <laughs> um, so um, um, so yes there is a range I, I it, but it isn't so great that it is not possible to cater for that because I can say to that child 
that says I've got six here. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something like, okay, can you find me find me more than six? Can you find me? Mm. You know, find me find me fewer than six. And I'm, I'm I'm kind of exploring it with him um, or her. Um, you know exactly what that. How can you make your six look? How do you know that six? Can you make lay out your six so that I can instantly see their six? So here I'm beginning to think about how 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 his how this child's subitizing is developing, which yes. is I think. Bernie Westcott talked about it, which is that business of recognizing a small amount uh, instantly. Um, so there's the sort of there's the stuff that you're born with, the subitizing that you can recognize like up to four. I think it's only up to four without anybody <laughs> um, without arranging them somehow. And so then I'm using that business of can you arrange them so we can see them? So there's six easily. It's not going to be in a line, is it? <laughs> yeah. So am <laughs> I right? In- Am I right in saying, Helen, again, this may be completely oversimplifying things, but in terms of when you're thinking about kind of planning this lesson, because, again, there's no worksheets going on here or anything like that. There's no kind of um, almost kind of structured activity for the kids then. It's, it's not as if you're doing like a worked example here, then the kids are going back to the desk to complete complete a task. Is the kind of planning kind of you... You've got an aim where you want the kids to get to and you're you're kind of thinking through a list of questions and prompts that are going to get them there. Would, would that be the kind of the planning mechanism that's in your head? Or, uh, yeah, or, uh, yeah. Over time. I mean, over time as well. I mean, it's not in a lesson. So mm. I might have my for in, in that. So this is so I'm thinking now this is early part of the you know, it's September yes. and they, I'm, I'm getting to know them as well so my for that lesson will be that I've made a contact with every one of those children and had you know I've had some contacts some mathematical contact with them if you like so that's my aim for that lesson but over time yes what we're getting to here um what we're getting to here is this business of dealing with um dealing with quantities and accurately counting out so one of the, the the best the only test I think you need, you the only baseline you need for reception, if you want to use that word, there's a, you know, let's not let's not talk about baseline testing. But if, <laughs> if we want if we want a baseline in which to see if our children are, uh, if you like, on track, it's it's the ability to count a smaller amount from a larger one accurately. So in other words, um, I'd say to you, if I want to see if you're if you're on track there, Craig, I'd say to you, Craig, can you pop across there and, get, and fetch me? five crayons out of that pot now the pots holds loads right so you're going to cross the classroom you're going to get five crayons you're going to remember that i want five you're going to count five out you're going to stop at five you're going to bring them back to me and i'm going to go to you what have you got there and you're going to say five crayons got it so that ability to in fact i think the the key for reception for me would be to go and fetch me go and fetch me 12 can you see what I'm doing with 12 there? I'm just moving. So I'm thinking through end of reception year. I want all of my children to be able to go and go and get go fetch 12. Yes. Count out 12 from a larger amount. Stop at the right time. Remember the room was in the right order. Remember 12 labels the whole group. So that that's a really that's a really um, good. I mean, research shows it comes from the work of Young Loveridge in New Zealand in the early 90s that that is key for the age group. That. 
I'll, I'll tell you i'll tell you the question that's running through my head here and I, again i don't i don't know if this is going to come right uh, come out right at all so so i again if I, I put myself in the shoes of the only shoes i know as, as a secondary teacher and I, and I sit down at the start of the year and i look at look at the scheme of work look at all the things that say my year nines um should should learn throughout the course of the year and i can break it down into into chunks so in these two weeks we're going to do fractions then we're going to do some percentages i'm going to do some algebra then some sequences and so on and so forth but i'm i'm, I'm thinking there helen and i'm thinking if uh, look trying to equate that to your experience in reception like by the end of the year you want the students to be able to kind of fetch your 12 12 crayons but like how on earth do you break that break that down because you, you, you're going to be teaching them lots of lots of maths I, I mean I, I don't know how many hours you're going to be actually um, doing maths with these with these students so do, do you know what I, do you hear what I'm trying to say here? how do you how do you break it down to say right today I'm going to do this and Wednesday I'm going to do this and Friday I'm going to do this because it almost doesn't seem like there's enough maths to spread out over the year. <laughs> does, does that make sense? No, I know. Uh, yes, it does. But so if you look at if I mean, we have the early learning goals, which are which is the goal that is supposed to be what is what we ex, is what is expected by mm. um, DFE that the majority of uh, children leaving reception having attained that goal. Now, the numbers goal um, has quite a lot in it when you look at it. Now you're going to test my memory because I remember. Can you just give us a, even just a flavour of yes, some of this? Yes, it does. Things, it says about counting to, it says counting, knowing, uh, writing, reading numbers to 20. Right, okay, yes. It says a doubling and use, solving problems by doubling and halving. Jeez, and this is this is still reception. Yeah, yeah. Fucking I'm gonna read. Right. I'm gonna actually get it up here. Um, yeah, and we'll we'll link we'll link to this in the show yeah. notes as well. Well, this is, this I mean, is it's a bit of a oh gosh. Of course, I've put in number goal, um, and it's come up with got as in football. <laughs> so I need to, I didn't know we were gonna do this. No, uh, no. This this is one of the many tangents we'll we'll go on, Helen. Um. Okay, let's get it up there. I should know it off by hand. I do know. It. I mean, most of it is, but I want to make sure it's yeah, sure, sure. spot on for you. So there are a number of early learning goals. Obviously, maths is only one of them. Uh, we've, there's one at the moment. There's one for numbers and one for shapes, space and measures. So we're own, so the numbers goal goes like this. Okay. Uh, so, yes. And the other issue is that these are under review at the moment. And there's, there's a review going on right now. And they've removed... They've removed shapes. They've removed geometry from it, shape, space, and measures. In other words, so and we're all kicking up about that because that's key to children's number understanding. Is that business of um, understanding relationships between shapes and being able to move things and see that they're the same if they're moved. I mean, one of the things we haven't discussed about knowing about, say, the number four or six or any of those numbers, is that you need to know it's six if it's spread out in a bunch, in a pile, in a heap, in a you know, it's still six even though it looks different. It's yes. still six. So if we take shapes, space, and measures out, I'm wondering what those children's experiences will, you know, will that will be offered them will be much, much thinner and much less rich than they should be. So is that um, when when you say the shape, space, and measure for early years, is it kind of predominantly number related? Like no, that? It, when, it's not. It's about. It's actually about moving and and position and all of those. Ah, things. right. Uh, so the numbers goal says children count reliably with numbers from one to 20, place them in order and say which number is one more or one less than a given number. Using quantities and objects, they add and subtract two single digit numbers and count on or back to find the answer. They solve problems, including doubling, halving and sharing. 
Now, there's quite a lot in there. Yes. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and not only a... that, just to, just to finish, is that there are several parts of that that are completely unsupported by research as being achievable for five-year-olds. They're not well, achievable. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say there. Like, did you have, and obviously this isn't going to be a scientific answer at all, but just, just with your experience, what kind of proportion of students will be meeting those goals by the end of end of reception? Well, the figures are out there for, you know, for, for all of the time. Uh, 2014, I think these, or was this 2012? Oh, anyway, for the four four years that we've had this goal, the figures are there and the numbers, the, the children achieving the the numbers goal is lo- at a good level of development. It's much lower than the other ones. That and writing actually has a problem because, right. they, because they're set wrongly. So, so saying which number is one more or one less, I just think about that for a minute because counting on and back is um less than half of of australian children were able to count on at five even when taught by specially trained teachers that's a piece of research 21 percent of new zealand six-year-olds were able to count on and back okay 21 percent of new zealand six-year-olds and we've got it in as that goal and because it's it's I'm nearly swore that it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. Um, I mean, you. I could say to you. Um, so I might be able to. I mean, counting on um, is a sign that you've li- is that children are able to recognise a group, which we've already talked about, say five, yeah. and then go six, seven, eight, nine. So that's nine. So you're actually got that subgroup within the whole group. Yes. And they're also starting to do this sort of additive composition of number that each number is is one more than the number before. So um, if you I mean, I think Bernie Westercott was you looked at Numicon and that has mm. that additive composition of number in it. You can see in those, you know, the plates with the holes in. Yes. You've got the one, then you've got the two, and that's one more than the one, and the three is one more than the two. So that's that business of the additive composition of number. So um, so counting on is really is is difficult. So counting back, that's it. That's even harder. Flipping. Um, I'm I'm just thinking here, Helen. What? So was did it, were, were these? Um, again, this is the wrong word, but what? Um, ob, not objective. What? What would you call these? Um, learning goal. Learning this goal. Is the learning goal. Learning goal. Were these? The were these? Were these learning goals, um, were, they haven't always been in um, reception, have they not? Has it been made um, purposely more difficult over the recent well, years? Well, yes. I've, yes. Because, <laughs> yes. I mean, t- um, this was introduced in 2014 and they were sort of, um, is, is, you know how politicised education is. And uh, this is this is what this is here. And there's uh, and one of you have seen me having a beef on Twitter about the fact that there are so few um, early years people included in in the um, in the pre- preliminary to anything like this. You know, it's kind of yes. set by people that are that have a, quite a lot maybe to do with maths, but nothing to do with child development. And that's, you know, um, it's research has been ignored for whatever political reason that might that might be. 
so perhaps it's best if we don't go down that road yeah but i mean just just one just one, one more on that then we'll take the kind of the, the politics out of it but just from from your experience helen what what would be more appropriate what are some of the things that you think is is achievable and useful for for, for students to be able to do by the end of say reception what stays and what would you get rid of okay that's a good question so um, the early childhood maths group who I belong to, which is um, a group um, of early years educators interested in, in maths education, I suppose, or whichever way around you want to put that. We meet three times a year and we submitted our our goal in the review process leading up to the review that's on now. We submitted a goal and that goal was counting, reli- counting reliably with numbers from one to twelve uh, because the teens are so tricky. You mm. see, that's the the retreats are so tricky that that really they should still be to, to think that, that that you're when your child if, if you if I'm a year one teacher and I assume that those children are coming to me reliable reliable within numbers to 20 then I'm going to have a problem when I start teaching them in year one because they're going to be children in there that are not firm in their number knowledge within those teen numbers yes, if, I, yes. if I assume that knowledge is there my teaching is going to be just a pot Yes. You know, everything, all the foundations start crumbling. So it has to be lower than that. Um, we'd have, I mean, I think I can't remember the exact words we use, but I mean, I don't mind um, dub, um, doubling, halving and sharing and being in there as experiences. But to say that children can solve problems mm. doing that is out is is not right either. Now, I could I can't. So we we, we came up with a goal. Um, and we had pra- um, practically, practically using quantities and objects, um, uh, adding and subtracting small amounts to other amounts and realising what happens. I mean, there's a, for example, there's a thing that happens with young children where, so say I've got, um, so I've got seven sweets in front of me, okay, and I, and we count them and you and I both agree we have seven sweets there. You're happy yep. with that. Yep. And I take, and I take two sweets away. And we look at and you count them and you say there are five. OK. And I put those two sweets back and you'll yeah. go, yeah, there's seven. You know, I counted them before. Now, if I if we if I take two sweets away and we admit and we agree there's five and then I and then I add two different sweets, you ha- often children have to recount. Ah, OK. Do you see what's happening there? Yes. So they they're, so basically. I'm putting the same two sweets back. They're fine with that still being seven. But if it's a different two that are coming in, they, they're not sure that I haven't affected the number, the quantity, because I've changed the actual things, the actual items themselves. Now, that is a, so, so when we, need, we need to make sure that we're working at depth within these ideas, that we are aware of all of the sort of... Um, what the research shows about our young children's development. I mean, all up until now, so up until they start school, a chair is a chair, whether it's this way up, that way up, upside down, stacked <laughs> on its own. Suddenly, suddenly things aren't things anymore if you change them. <laughs> yes. You know, if you alter their... They've got to revisit some of the, the knowings that they know, if you like, Um and that's that's kind that's kind of what that's why I love it. I love working on it with them. Well, I mean, this sounds well. I mean, one, it's fascinating, and two, it sounds flipping hard, Helen. Because I'll tell you one thing that 
that's kind of screaming out at me here is so sometimes I find myself as, as a math teacher suffering from the curse of knowledge so say for example um I am teaching some students I don't know like the classic how to add fractions together something some dull like that I I find it so hard to remember what it was like not yeah. to be able to do something like that, that sometimes I find it hard to, to relate to the students' difficulties. And you get better at this because you get more experience. But this is certainly something when I first started teaching that I, I just found an absolute nightmare because yeah. I'd, always been, I'd always been good at maths. I'd never had these difficulties. I'd never experienced these difficulties. So I found it very hard to teach students who, who had them. And again, teachers get better and you can kind of fast track it yes. a little bit by speaking to more experienced colleagues and so on and so forth. But I'm, I'm listening to you here, Helen. And like, I cannot physically remember what it was like not to be able to do 10 take away two, let alone what it was like not to be able to understand that if I take two sweets away and put two different sweets back, that the quantity hasn't changed. So is is curse of knowledge or whatever, whatever kind of terminology we want to use, is that like a, a real problem for, for early years and, and, and primary school teachers just in, in general? I think I think it's I think we're all. I think it's always a bit of a curse. I mean, I, I, I think that was exactly what was happening with me and the little chap with yes. the unit excuse. You know, come on, you know, this is straightforward. I've shown you to it several times, you know. <laughs> I can't understand why you're getting so stuck. And I think, I think, actually, I think early years teachers, um, I don't, in my experience, that I've learned a lot from talking to early years teachers, by which I mean teachers in nursery and young with nursery and younger children because you can't because all of that world to those children is new they're bringing mm. things to it so part of the joy of being in there with them is, is seeing it through their eyes you seeing things through their eyes and they say amazingly funny things well they <laughs> are funny to us because they because it's it's a surprise and that's kind of what i was taught, trying to refer to us about um, planning for surprises you know, what are they going to, you know, the, I mean, the, the, just words like, um, can you put these into pairs? Well, I had children do that once I came back and there were these huge piles. And I said, these were these cubes that these are the multilink cubes that they weren't multilink, but similar to that where they yeah. link on all sides. And they came back, they made these massive things. And I said, oh, you know, what, what's going on here? They go, well, he's made a banana. And, he, <laughs> and it, you have moments like that and it makes you think, oh, right. OK, you know. I've, you know, I've forgotten that there was a word. You know, for me, in my head, we yeah, didn't So I, I put all those other meanings of pair out the way. So now I think I've, I find that's taught me to start with that. So when I when I teach, when I've been teaching older children, sort of five, six, and we've look, looked at volume, we start with, where have you heard that word before? Yes, yes. Um, and we start with that. Uh, and, you know, sometimes words have, you know, it's like uh, similar, you know, or, or, you know, words, words that have a particularly strict meeting, meaning, if you like, in maths, but mean vaguely the same in the outside world, like half. Half's a great one, isn't it? And you hear them. And, I mean, I've said it to my own children. You can have the biggest half, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. you know, that business. Is, and there's other words that mean something completely else. So, yes. So I think I think that this business of if you if you work with very young children you are you're sensitized you're more sensitized to that really to them and um, I think that's what I've learned from from working alongside very very you know knowledgeable and gifted 
early years teachers, not just at maths, with anything, just listening, just tuning in and listening to what's going on there. Yes, uh, that, 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 that's absolutely fascinating. And just one more question on the lesson planning. And again, I don't know whether this is relatable at all or whether this is a, a really daft question. But so let's go back to the um, the kind of activity or, yeah, or demonstration with the beans. Yeah, I want to get back to the beans. Yeah, here. let's so, just get back there. <laughs> So um, if we're at the stage where we, we've kind of had the discussion um, um, who's who's got the most, how do we know, and students have been counting and so on. And you said that the Possibly that might be enough for that particular um, kind yes, of learning episode did. or whatever. Now, as a secondary teacher, um, what I'm thinking here is, so if I'm trying to relate this to, to my experiences, I'm thinking, OK, I've taught something there um, or some, some, some learning I, I think may have may have happened at that point. And if we do this, I don't know if you if you like the distinction between learning and performance, but if we just just use it for one second, that my students have, have performed in the moment. They've shown me that they can know that six is more than five or can count to six or, or, or argue who's got the most now as a secondary teacher i'm thinking to myself now right okay fine they've performed there and then in the moment but i need to make sure i revisit this so i'm thinking okay i'm going to revisit this maybe the next day in the form of a starter quick quick question on the board or the following week it's going to appear in maybe a low stakes quiz that they'll do or maybe it's going to appear in a homework or maybe it's going to be um just a random question that i'm going to bang up on the board or an exit ticket or something like that what would be the kind of early is equivalent how are you revisiting that moment to make sure that students have understood it and have retained it D does that make sense yes it, i mean you revisit it i revisit it we revisit it many many times in many many forms so that particular thing i mean we'd be counting it wouldn't be just the beans we're counting we're counting all sorts of things i'll be setting up lots of different situations where they have to count things out and refer and compare quantity and link it to a number but in, in, even in this with the beans for example the next time i set it out so perhaps this, that was monday perhaps that's you know tuesday or wednesday i put a load of um containers there with the beans with lids now my favorite are those film pots which you sort of can't get anymore because you don't people don't use roll reel to reel film you know the little film pot oh yes yes yeah yeah i know them now yes. they hold they hold a really nice amount of gold beans they hold about <laughs> approaching 20 beans so we're working with numbers within the teens with those pots because if i put the pots and the lids out they're going to count they're going to put them in them aren't they yes so they yes. put them in them and they shake them and we start saying how many do you think i've got in there how many do you think i've got in here and we have to check and we look at different noises how much sound they make and of course, there's always one bright spot, if you like, that jams all the jams as many beans in as you can <laughs> and puts the lid on and shakes them. And of course, there's no noise. Yes. And those are those sort of planning for those moments of uh, excitement, if you like, is key. So that's just fact. So you, I, I've watched it several times. I've, in my head, I've got this one little lad and he's, in, he's it's a little lad in Plymouth in a nursery and he's shaking this thing. And you could see him thinking, right. So he, he goes to his partner, how many I've got in here then? And of course, the partner ignores him for quite a long time. And I stay out of it because I want to see what's happening. Shakes the pot a bit more. And eventually, he's tapping the person on the shoulder, shaking the pot. And eventually, the child goes, none. Because, you know, can't hear anything. So he takes the lid off and tips them all out and goes, ha! <laughs> and... Um, so then it's kind of like, oh, you know, that's exciting, isn't it? I've got zero noise 
and a lot of beans. So how many beans make no noise then? Let's just yeah. see that for a minute. Let's see. What about, you know, how much? So we're beginning to work with, I mean, you know, Bernie Westergott talked about zero. We're beginning to look at zero. So I'm meeting, I'm meeting those business of counting and comparing over and over and over again. So even with the beans, I'm setting up something slightly different each time so that they're continually meeting, meeting, um, meeting those ideas. And the other, the other thing is that, you know, research shows that children are much more accurate if they count into something about naming the quantity so obviously if you're if you've got a wallet or a purse or a or a, or a pot and i put those beans in there or whatever they are in them and, and i put the lid on they become one thing don't they one quantity so that yes. is much easier for me to see those as five than if they're all in line all spread out <laughs> um, and they're still all singles really then when they're like that aren't they yes so so that's where my beans are going. So I'm going to start using containers. I'm going to start putting different amounts in. We're going to start looking at. And then I might, you know, here we have next week. I've got some post-it notes and some pens. And we've got, right, so we're going to, what mark could we put on this post-it note to show how many are in this pot? Ah. See? So nice. we look at the pot and we say, oh, can we see? So I'm going to see what they give me, first of all. So, And that is based on the research by Martin Hughes in the 80s and from his book Children and Number, where he he was um, a psychologist working out of um, in Edinburgh. And he did this uh, thing with three-year-olds where he put a number of bricks into a box and got them to label the lid to say how many were inside. And you get all sorts of responses you get a form of tallying you get fairly idiosyncratic sort of idiosyncratic sort of uh, i don't want to call them scribbles but marks which don't really, really mean anything other than to the person who made them and then you get children using uh, numerals so you get that whole range so you can start working on um how do we know that's two in there um you know and and who knows the number two and can recognize the number two and can write the number two so there's a whole there's a whole can you see a whole host of yes lessons i can be doing there and i can go outside and we can score goals with a ball and we can start marking our numbers up on the you know how many balls are in each bucket <laughs> so i can spread it that way as well um uh and then you see you see so we're going on now so we're going when we're ter- maybe we're we might be a i don't know Several weeks down the line, right? Maybe months. And I say one morning, right? I said, I've got a game I can play with five beans. Who wants to give that a go this morning? That's no good me doing that when we haven't had a good old go with a whole heap of beans to start yes. with. Yeah. So I said, you're only allowed five beans, and you've got five beans in a plate, okay? A, a paper plate, a gold plate, whatever it is. And okay, so everybody's ready with that. So we've got to make sure we've all got five. That takes a while. And um, we're all happy we've got exactly five, only five. Right, let's put the rest away. Right, fine. Right, now this is how it goes. I shake these five beans in my hands and I'm going to spill them onto the plate and I'm going to see how many pitch up gold. How many work? Right, okay. That gold up. So, and we're going to do that in pairs. So, what I'm getting there, Craig, is all those pairs of numbers that make five, aren't I? Yes, yes. And we're going to gradually, oh, what are you noticing? Well, oh, you're not, oh, what do you mean? What are you, why, why are you cheering? Oh, I've got all gold. Okay. Is that, do you, do you get that very often? Do you get all gold very often? Jeez. And so this is a lesson, actually, that I've used with, um, 
Mike Ollerton and I have developed that runs right up into. Well, you can see the. Pro- you'll be aware of the probability. That's that's it. Well, I've, yeah, I'm, I'm finally we're into something I understand about here, Helen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, a, beautiful, it's a really lovely thing to do with maths um, students who want to know about who who you know. When I talk to them about early years maths, when I work with them, we do something like this because they and then we work it back if you like, and all the way up to see where the where the thread. Of progression is there uh, and we're able to you know it allows us to talk about it gives us a, a way a structure for talking about um maths development really from from start to finish from, well no from just maths development yeah i don't think there is a start yeah. <laughs> Okay, Han. Um, now we've you've talked a little bit already about some of the difficulties that that kids, particularly early years and um, children, are facing. Do you have any um, other just kind of areas of maths that that students struggle with that that may be a surprise to somebody like me, a secondary school teacher, or some of our listeners who who may? Because for a little example here, the one you did with the sweets, that's kind of blown my mind a little bit. There, the, the difference between you returning two of the same sweets and the students knowing that there's seven, and you returning two different sweets and the students having to count up again. Like I would not have seen that coming um, at all. Are there any other areas of maths that that students tend to find particularly difficult when when they first encounter them well i think i've i've um i've I've actually alluded to to a couple of these but um already but obviously the whole um understanding symbols and what they mean is a massive area and the sort of links between uh what you're doing with the concrete objects what you're thinking about what you're saying and what's what's written down is 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 huge and that that really i was alerted to that by the work of martin hughes that i've referred to mm. be, before who who is a really important book for t- anybody that teaches young children who, who who found that um i mean this was the 80s he found even working with seven and eight year olds if he did something like um he had i think he used the box again and he had sort of three or th- three things in the box and then he put two more in the box and they were able to say five. Now, quite nursery age children are able to solve small number problems like that, perhaps only with four, some mm. of them, but they could do it. But once you started writing it down as three, add whatever, two equals five, then, you know, that's they can't they can't they don't see the link between that. They can't read it. It's incredibly, incredibly difficult to understand that because it's such a it's such a, it's a huge step symbolism from the sort of doing it talking about it writing it down and you i think you'll find a parallel when you think about some of your students with algebra mm. you know that they're able to do things but actually understanding the symbolism of it is like a whole other a whole other world and i recognize that because i i really hated algebra and if this didn't if, get it no no and i can certainly relate to that and if this isn't a stupid question how, how do you manage that transition helen what what have you found successful to because well, we, we have to get yeah. students there eventually yeah, don't we so how yeah, do we, how do we do it well, we, I don't think we do it very well, is the short answer to that question. And I think we're continuing not to do it very well from the 1980s onwards. And the, and the, I mean, I was, I was running a workshop last week and we talked there about the role of informal recording and what I call, you know, what I call uh, free drawing and writing. Yeah. So you're doing something, you're using Cuisinaire to do something. So maybe we're looking at square numbers with Cuisinaire. And I'm saying, right, free drawing and writing, you know, let get, get the, don't just do it with the apparatus, put the apparatus away and then think, right, that's it. Now, we're going to write it down that the writing has to be the recording has to be interlinked with 
what you're doing with the apparatus, what you're thinking. So even when I'm so when I've worked with older children, when I, by that I mean up to 11, trying to get them to. So they're answering questions like, so let's add, let's add um, you know, 342 and 67. How do you do that? You know, write down what you're doing. They're not keen to do it. No. And, you know, they do it because the, the, the sort of the the uh, emphasis tends to be and this is a vast generalization, but tends to be on fluency at a cost really because i think you need to get um i think you need in order for the symbolism to be understood and used fluently we need to get the informal recording and the sort of the um you know, free drawing and writing linked up with and, you know, and then i can say okay so there's there's an we can write this we can just write this sign we can write this symbol and it means this operation it means you're adding to it Let's just let's have the box again. Let's have our box. Let's put our let's put some bricks in it. I put two in. I'm going to write a message on the top to tell you how many more I'm putting in here. And I secretly write add one and I stick the post it on there. <laughs> and I'm, they're beginning to see that, uh, you know, I'm beginning to use that um use the uh, symbol as an operation because i think there's two things there's several things going on there but i think that you know there's uh, there's they don't think that symbols like well equals the equality symbol is is hugely problematic they think it's something you've got to do it means you yes. it makes yes rather than it actually means the two sides of that equation are equal and um so i think that so i think one of the things that's very successful and we don't do enough of is the free drawing and writing could you just and, uh, sorry helen will you just what, what does that actually actually look like what 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 would you see a child do on the paper when they're doing this this free drawing and writing well if you if you think about um so let's just think about it so cuisinaire mm. you okay with that <laughs> only recently you but yes to, i you am. need to get my book you need to get my book <laughs> a good plug there helen i like that as well yeah, I like it. <laughs> so um so you've got the so we've, we've got the cuisinaire out and yep. maybe they've made a staircase okay yes okay so i'm going right get your pen you know what do you notice about what do you notice there what do you notice what do you wonder now get your pen and write that down so they might be writing, they might be writing underneath, you know, one, two, three, four, five, or they might be yep. just drawing a staircase. It goes up. Yeah. You know, so there might be words. Um, so there might be them. They're probably making they're probably making pictures with it. So they're probably very young children will make faces. So I'm going to go, OK, take a pen. We're going to put this away in a minute. The the rods are going to go away. But I want you to draw something so you can remember what your face it was exactly like for tomorrow. Uh, OK, yes. Yep. So it's a bit like that when it starts, you know, with adults who I was working with last week. I said we had big sheets of paper on the table, just like I would with um, what we would with younger children. And I and I we were saying free drawing and writing and they were laughing. But I was saying, go on, write down what you're doing here. Because he's, I'm saying, what are you working on? And this this guy's going, oh, we're looking at, I'm looking at, um, I've forgotten what you want, the cube numbers or whatever he was looking at, you see. And I say, well, go on, do some writing about that. <laughs> you know, let's see, let's see. And then we do a kind of a, what um, um, a colleague of mine who wrote the book with me, Simon Gregg, refers to as a gallery walk. We all walk around and we look at what everybody's written. And we look at what they've made. And we see how that links to what we know what we each individually know, what we commonly know about that, that thing that he's uh, writing about. So I think the free drawing and writing is, 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 is really important, the informal recording. And then I can start feeding in the, 
this is how, you know, this is, we, we're going to lay it out like this. You know, as we get down the line, we can start laying out, you know, showing, introducing the symbolism that they need to know in order to do maths f- further up when now they're older. This is very, very interesting. So this, to me, a little bit, this kind of free writing and drawing, would this be kind of, uh, and I I don't want to rush to put labels on things at all here, but is this kind of almost like an inquiry? Is this the students kind of having this prompt of the kind of Cuisinaire rods and just writing down things that they notice, things that they wonder? And then are you, as you wander around doing the gallery walk, are you then kind of whole class sharing some of the kind of interesting ideas and then choosing avenues to go down or, or is that something different no i think it can be that i mean I, I we kind of um in my head when you're talking to me now i'm in an old i'm in an older children's class right okay yes yes so um i mean it might be that um we've used we've never used the cuisinaire before so that and that would probably be the case in in with four five six year olds you know they might be meeting it for the first time mm. so it is very much i'm trying just like I, we talked about with the beans i want to find out what they're noticing about yes. this because the important thing about these rods is that they're each relationally they're in, they, they, they are organized in relation to one another in a very very particular way so um, you know there's a unit rod and that is related to all the other rods in that box it's not random and those children have to have to they don't know that by looking at it they have to they have to find that out and be sure about that before we can do any work with them at all so um, and we can see the relationship between each one of those rods. So I'm looking for them building a staircase. I'm, lo- I'm listening to them and I'm listening for that staircase. Yes. And then I can use that and I can say, hey, see what uh, Craig did. Look, I took a photograph, shove it up on the whiteboard. This is what Craig did over there with the Cuisinaire this morning, yesterday. Anybody? What do you notice? Class. Yes, my whole class. And we have a chat about that and we see what we know. Well, I wonder what other staircases we can make. Can we make it come down? Can we what other what other you know, what other questions could we explore here? So it is very much that business of inquiry. But I am going to be feeding in my teaching because I'm a teacher. So why wouldn't I directly teach anything? Yes. Why wouldn't I? I'm going to be feeding my teaching in to that. That's interesting. Um, can, can I ask as well, Helen? You, you, again, I've, I could literally speak to you all day about this kind of stuff. You, 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 you say may... that to all your guests, Craig. Oh, you're no, not, but... you're not pulling any wool over mine. <laughs> well, honestly, you'll see how, uh, how low we get through the questions here. I, I have tons of stuff I want to ask you. You, um, you mentioned um, about kind of easing the transition to the, the um, addition sign there and how that's quite a jump for students. One thing I've always wondered about, and I'm hoping you can help me here, is the um, the transition to, well, just introducing multiplication uh, as a concept. Because, again, it's not something I ever experienced because although sometimes kids will arrive in year seven not perhaps being able to multiply, they've certainly experienced the idea of multiplication. So how does that happen? Because if you were to ask me what is multiplication, explain multiplication to somebody who's never encountered it before. I'd probably go down the kind of repeated addition line, but then I worry that perhaps that's not a good idea. Where does, how would you introduce some, how would you introduce multiplication for the first time to to, to a class of students? And what kind of age will we be talking there? Well, um, so, uh, just where to start um naturally uh sharing and division is much more natural 
that, that can come up with that can come up with reception easily. So this in this sort of context. So I've got um, I've got uh, eight pieces of gold here. We're all here's two pirates. I've got two teddies. I don't know matter what they're yeah. two pirates here. Right. You've got your paper and your pen so you can work out this problem. Two pirates. Here comes eight pieces of gold. Right. Let's all count them. Blah, blah, blah. I wonder if those each of those pirates can have a fair amount of gold. Do you think we could share this gold out so they forgot the exactly the same amount? Yeah, do that. Fine. Can you record it? Free drawing and write. Show me what you've done. Right. Oh, here comes pirate number three. He wants some <laughs> gold. He wants some gold. He wants the same amount of gold as the other two. What are we going to do now? You know, can we share it fairly? Yes, yes. So those sort of problems are fantastic. So now you've got two things you can do when you start reception next week. <laughs> <laughs> There's the pirate gold. <laughs> Because can you see how absolutely makes perfect sense as a problem that I can understandable I, sense. I can I can completely see. But if you'd have said to me, well, two minutes ago, what comes first, multiplication or division? I'd have said multiplication any day of the week. So again, it just feels that just almost feels the intuitive order: addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. But now you've yeah. said that division, you can you can visualize it. It makes sense in those yeah. those kind of problems. So when when does multiplication yeah, come in? Yeah, exactly. I will do, I will answer that question. Oh no, sharing, no worries. <laughs> is, is the business is the business of sharing fairly yes. that's so natural. Yes, yes. To do so, those problems. That's why we differ. I was differing with the early learning goal which says solves problems by doubling halving sharing whatever it says sharing yes they can solve problems by sharing they can at that age it is doable in if you get the context right they can do it understand it so multiplication i'm not saying i'm not saying division comes first i don't i'm not quite sure what that means i'm saying that sharing is is more natural in terms of understanding it and and, yes. and approaching it with very young children so multiplication see they have but they've got to know their tables by the time they're mm. they're eight seven no it's eight isn't it craig so they've got yes, to know them by so, then. Yes. so we've got to be introducing multiplication before most of the rest of the world start statutory school age schooling. that's the issue we've got here so it's a bit like you know, yes, we probably can get them to do it. Should we be getting them to do it? Is there a better way of them spending their time? Probably, actually, at that age, yes. But we're stuck with it, okay? So when we start introducing multiplication is really far too soon mm. in terms of research and development, all of those things. But when we start using it, you can, I mean, I think you I think one of your questions is why are you so keen on manipulatives? Oh, or yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, why wouldn't I be? Because that is the only way to, I can't explain multiplication to a seven-year-old or a six-year-old. We can look at it. We can look at it by, by looking at, um, so my, my, one of my favorites is, if, is by using Cuisinaire for multiplication because you can see that the three five rods take up the same space as the five three rods. Yes. They fit on top of one another. We can put them in a, um, a Cuisinaire number track and you, we can lay them out next to what we don't even need the number track. Actually, forget the number track. Could forget you, the number OK, track. fine. <laughs> Just lay them out in a long train, the fives and the threes, and they take up the sp same linear length. Yes, yes. I can start. That's how we start looking at it in terms of and also arrays looking at we've got counters we've got two centimeter square paper we've got things that fit in the holes and we're laying out four threes and we turn the paper and we can see three fours 
and we've still got 12. We've got rows of four and we've got columns. You want to see what my hands are doing? (laughs) 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 Trying to do it (laughs) because it's such a visual thing. Four, you've got four columns of three and you've got three rows of four. I think I've said that right. Yes. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, 100%. 100%. And there'd be lots of exposure to that. That would be over a long period of time. Is that right? And the other, and the beauty of both of those models, the Cuisinart or the Array model, is that you've got. You've got division and multiplication together because mm, you've yes. got 12. Yeah. So I haven't got to explain that. But, yeah, you, it's inside. It's, it's the, you can see it as the inverse of each other as long as you draw the student's attention to it. You know, they're not going to see it. <laughs> I've got yeah. to draw their attention. That's my teaching, if you like. I want them to attend to that. Yes. So we talk about it. And I've got those things. So when, when you said in my lesson plan, what have I got written down? What I've got written down are my key questions that I'm going to be asking to move that learning on those that's i wrote i write those down i still write those down you know this is key i need to ask this question for this piece of maths yes now on the on the multiplication again this and i do apologize this this may be another daft one the um is it is it important and if so when and how to to get kids knowing that three fours are 12 just like that or knowing that yeah and and is that something that just does that just happen naturally with them playing with the with with the with the uh, cuisinaire rods and the arrays or is it kind of and i don't know if explicit is the right way but is it something that you think right okay today i'm going to make a conscious move to try and move my students towards being able to recall these facts or or how are you however you want to call it no, I don't think it is a conscious move to do it one day. I think mm. we're doing that tied up in it all. So when the rods, we put them back in the box, I might say something. I mean, we're now in first year. We're in first year. We're in year three now, which right. is seven and eight. Nice. Or, or maybe, maybe year two. We might be a little bit in year two. Depends, you know, what end of the year it is and what we've yes. done. But I might be saying, right, they're back in the box. Right. Think about Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. You know, think, <laughs> about, think, about your, think about your array of 12. You've laid it out. We've laid it out as three, four. So what does, if I said to you, three multiplied by four, what do you say to me? So we're sort of moving it. We're moving it into just the verbal. Yes. Moving it from. So I'm doing that all the time. I'm, I'm moving between. That's why I think this concrete pictorial abstract, which is being pushed at the moment, you know, that comes from Bruno originally. I agree with that in principle. What I disagree with, that it's a linear journey from concrete to pictorial. Mm. I think we have to be, and where's talk in all of that is my other issue with that model. You know, talk is what, is what, is what uh, helps us all make sense of what we're seeing, what we're touching, you know, what we're doing with symbols. Um, so I think all of that concrete pictorial abstract has to, we have to keep moving between all of those things. You know, when I'm standing in the line with my reception children going into, we were hanging on, we're on going into assembly like we normally are waiting because we have to get ready. So everybody's been to the toilet and we all line up. We're going to be doing something completely in our heads. So I will be saying something like, okay, we've got a box. I've dropped two cubes in it. I've shut the lid. I've opened the box, put two more cubes in. How many cubes have I got in there now? And who can tell me is the whole sentence? Yes. And that's, that's, we're not even touching the box. But we're using what we've done to move into the head and move into a more, you know, move into a more abstract sort of um, 
you know, move it into our heads because, you know, last doesn't take place, you know, through your fingers and up your arm, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like. Yeah, I, I'm glad you said that about the concrete pictorial abstract. I, I, I've often had a problem with that, that it's it's kind of like it's almost like level one is your concrete. And once you've gone past level one to yes. level two, you never go back to level yeah. one. You're like you fit. You've qualified on the concrete. And it never, never felt right to me that. So, no, I, it's not not right. And, and, I, and I don't think it is meant to be. It's not. No. Meant to be. And I think there is, a, there is a business here, which has always happened when we've had psychology just translated straight into classrooms, is that, you know, they, a, piece of, a psychologist might be noticing some form of development and that's kind of picked up and used as a form of teaching. And in fact, mm. that was never what it was intended to be in the first place. And it was just an observation of how of how people think. And I think that that's often the case with um, research, that it's kind of um, jumped on, if you like, and used without thinking through what the implications are of it and whether that actually matches that matches our experience as teachers and what we and what we and what we do i mean the other thing about manipulatives is that um and that whole process concrete pictorial abstract so so i've got um so say i've got some year sixes now and they're pretty they're pretty good at um i don't know fractions right and they're, they're doing all sorts of things fractions and i might say to them can you show me that with those quiz in there and they're like, well, I've just done it. And I said, yeah, I want you to do it with the quiz uh, there now. Now, they, I mean, I heard you thinking when you were working with Bernie Westercott in that interview. <laughs> you had to think, didn't you? Oh, you said, I definitely did. Correct. And I think that is the strength of using manipulatives with children who can already, inverted commas, do it because they have to undo it, rethink about how they know something and they will know it better deeper as a re as a result of doing that yes and i i now two things here one i 100 percent agree with you and i definitely was having to think hard i guess my question would be is that's quite challenging sometimes isn't it for in in terms of getting the students to do that because like a response i'd often get from students and i get this whenever i say show you working is like well i've got the answer well why would i need to so uh, do you often come and get up against that kind of resistance where when a child's got something and you say but show me how using the manipulatives the cuisinelle whatever they simply say well why do i need to or they don't engage with it as much as a child who hadn't already got the answer would do if, if that makes sense i think you i think i have had i do i have had older um students that are resistant to it but i'm but i'm you know i'm in charge in there yes yes that's what we're going to do so you know off you go and I wouldn't, I wouldn't mess, I wouldn't, me, I wouldn't mess with you, Helen, as well. So that, yeah, I, 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 I that's exactly it. I mean, and, and also there's the business of the culture of maths, and I really don't like the manipulatives being over in the corner. So the teaching's going on up here, and somebody's struggling, and I say, Craig, you need to go and get the Unifix. Yes. You yes. know that is like you only go and use those things when you're when you're in trouble, and what, you, you're going to get to about. Well, actually, you're not going to be much older than seven before you're not going to want to touch those. Mm, so yes. that is about the culture of that maths classroom and the fact that those manipulatives should be on every single table. You know, all the time there you're expected to be using them, you know, all the time. Well, you know, you otherwise it's going to be just for the people who are considered not very good at maths. Yes. And that's, uh, whatever, that's, that, and that's a huge one, isn't it? That, that that is massive. It's massive, and I've spent thirty over thirty years trying to battle with that. And I and I think 
in key stage two, we have made massive progress, I observe, since I started working in the advisory team in the early 80s. I think we have made, but not in year six, because you know what I'm going to say, because the tests don't. Yes. And therefore, there's this sort of, um, oh, it's just, well, let, just, let's not go there. But that, that, <laughs> we have made huge progress. I, and I see some secondary uh, some secondary colleagues that use them a, a, a lot and with great depth in a way that I think, oh, my gosh, I'd have loved my lesson to have had this here so I could have just touched something and then I might have understood it. I might have, you know, got something out of it rather than it all been on the board. Um, can, can I can I just ask on that? Because, again, you, you, um, you, you've had the privilege, like I do, of, of seeing kind of quite a few different um, lessons and different circumstances what what um what is kind of an effective use of manipulatives in secondary that you've seen is there anything that particularly stood out that you thought yeah that that is lovely for a, a particular topic or a particular way of using a, a given manipulative is there anything that springs to mind that perhaps a secondary teacher listening to this could think right i'm i'm going to go out and, and try that um I mean, I've, I've just, I've, I mean, I've got to say Cuisinaire because mm. I think it stretches. I think it can, you can almost do anything with it mathematically. I'm, put, I'm putting that out there. That's a big head. shout, that. That is a big shout. It is, it is, but it is, it is incredible how I have learned how, how it can be used with really hard, if you like, maths you know, how it can be used to, to bring it alive sort of visually. And that's what Mike Ollerton has done in that book. He's shown ways of using that, which I wouldn't have been able to have seen. And so I think that if you wanted to be, and, and in fact, that was last week's uh, workshop that we were running in Cologne was exactly that, that we had a whole, there were mainly secondary maths teachers in that room and some very sceptical ones uh, to the point of negative. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I and can imagine. I've I've had tweets since saying I've tried this, and I'm really excited about it. So I think, I think if you want to look at a manipulative that is able to um, bring in, into sort of the visual world what you might be doing symbolically, I think that probably would do it. And I'll tell you what, that's, um, that's nice, that, Helen, because that's almost a teaser that if I can persuade Mike to come on the show, he can pick that up and then take us through some secondary topics that would be, uh, yeah, applicable to that. I think that's yeah. you've, you've done a nice little teaser there. So put, put in a good word for me with Mike and we might, might get him on the show there. <laughs> I'll see. I'll see what he says. Fantastic. Um, I want to move now just, just to a couple of a couple of different areas. And in fact, this, this ties in quite nicely as well. You, um, you mentioned working with Mike there, and I always think that's a really useful thing particularly when when secondary and primary colleagues can get together and, and learn from each other now we've spoke a lot throughout this this show about what i think secondary colleagues can can certainly learn from primary and in particularly um some of the early years lessons and um, is is there anything that you've noticed that's true the other way around anything that perhaps either you've seen mike doing or you've seen whenever you visit secondary schools that you think actually they do that particularly well and that's not something that's done quite as well in, in early years or, or throughout primary that, that, that primary colleagues could learn from. Is, is, is there anything like that, Helen, that you've come across? Well, I've, I have hardly visited any secondary classrooms, uh, only a few. I haven't and I haven't visited any very recently. In my advisory role, I, I was, uh, you know, that was lovely to be able to yes. visit 
and in some cases not quite so lovely just like when you're visiting all sorts of classrooms yes um but um so i can only i think i think the more we can talk to each other across these sort of barriers that are really enforced barriers the, the better it is for everybody and there's one that r- runs between early years and key stage one there's a there's a click there where the curriculum changes and there's quite a lot of people saying well you should be doing this because we need them to be like this when they get to us and it happens again at sort of year two uh sort of year two ish there's a there's a bit of a glick there i think year three rather into from you and there's another one at 11 to 11 uh, into secondary and i think the more we can talk the more we can learn i think in particular what have i learned oh i think I, well i've learned through and mainly through belonging to the atm and talking to lots and lots of secondary teachers in atm sessions is that maths is amazing i mean i didn't know that i did <laughs> not know that They've taught me that maths is, I think, and I, ha- I had at the beginning, I, I, I wanted to get involved in, t- in uh, understanding how it was learned because I didn't find it easy and I didn't want to repeat that experience. Um, so I got involved in that. What I've learned since is that anybody, anybody could learn it. It's just we've just got to get it. We've just got to tune in enough to get it so that they they want to learn it and they are you've got a way into the way that they are thinking and looking and you're listening to them so any i think that that's taught me that you know looking at some of these examples that sometimes when we've worked on a piece of math and it's gone you know up and beyond into where i'm sort of thinking wow this is this is hard and i'm strong you know i'm really having to think here about what this is all about i, I it's taught me um that there is a trajectory for everything as well, that everything's going somewhere, you know, it's coming from somewhere and it's going somewhere. And I wasn't clear on where it was going. You know, what are we doing this for? Mm. It's going here. So it's taught me that. But in terms of approach, I, I don't think I can answer that because um, the, 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 the secondary teachers that I've, where we've had lots of deep conversations, often we find there's a, a big match between mm. how we work, a huge match you know, we start you start in this sort of way where we're trying to find out. I mean, I think, yeah, I've got this. I got this quote ready, actually. Strange. I think it fits here. This is John Mason. Every practitioner in whatever domain they work wants to be awake to possibilities, to be sensitive to the situation and to respond appropriately. Yeah, okay, so that's lovely. If, I, if I if that's what I really think teaching is, then then I have a lot to learn from everybody. Because I'm listening to what domain are you working in? What are you awake to? You know, what are your responses? It's those three things that I'm working with. So that's where I've learned. That's where I think we learn the most is if we think about teaching like that rather than as clumps of uh, what should have happened. That's a, that's a lovely answer, a lo- lovely positive answer. Um, now, I'll tell you what, my, my theory is, Helen, that we're getting on too well here. We, we've got to have some kind of fallout at some point, some kind of disagreement. So I'm wondering whether we can do that just before before we, we finish, because I've got to turn to um, kind of cognitive science uh, and in particular so, some theories that have um, been come to the forefront recently. Now, I follow you on, on Twitter um, and I love following you because you always ask tough questions and you can be quite provocative on there and you're not afraid to, to 
to raise issues. So I wonder whether we, we do actually disagree or whether whether we're just kind of talking about different things. So I just want to dig into this just just for a couple of minutes, if that's all right. So the, the first thing is I, I, I've spoke on this podcast for, for, the, for the last kind of year or so, how cognitive load theory has been one thing that's kind of really transformed my teaching in the sense that it's given me a model to work with that, that's changed the way I do simple things such as plan my worksheets, plan what my PowerPoints look like that I use, plan, plan the kind of how much text I have on the screen and how I integrate text with diagrams and so on and so forth. But it's also given me a vocabulary to talk um, uh, to talk about, like, I, I like the concept of working memory. I like the concept of, of cognitive overload. I think it provides a useful framework and a useful language to, to, to articulate things that previously I, I didn't have the vocabulary for. But I wonder what, what's your current viewpoint, Helen? Because obviously you, you've, you've read a ton of research and you've quoted loads, um, throughout the, the, this, this interview. Where do you stand on this kind of movement that, that seems to be happening towards kind of um, cognitive science and in particular cognitive load theory okay now I really like the way you talk about having a model to work with and and and, and I heard you say things like how much text you're going to put mm. on a now, do you remember when I started talking about the tablecloth and the beans and you said to me, wow, I didn't even think about that. Why would you even think about going on the floor? Yes. That's the same thing. I, do you know I, what, Helen? Do you know what, Helen? I was going to say it there and then because when you were saying that and because you, you made the point, didn't you, that I'd move them to the floor because otherwise there'd be sheets falling off the desk. There'd be a pencil on the floor. What was running through my head was the redundancy effect, which is the, the phrase that cognitive load theory gives to removing information or stimuli that's not directly related to what what the kind of learning intention is and it's the same thing isn't it? it's just a label for for what you're talking about there would that be right yes it is um yes it is so i think those things are the same now uh, what i have what i think there's two things right so the first thing is uh what what do i so do you so the business about working memory and long-term memory mm. and you'll have seen the, the to and fro with me with Dylan William on that. <laughs> yes, yes. Because, my, because I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's fine. But what do I do with that information? What am I going to do with it? How do I know which children have this in their long-term memory? I mean, what's that actually even mean? Because last week somebody asked, was talking about something. I think that was on Twitter. So there you are. How silly. I can't even remember if it's happening. <laughs> and um, it reminded me of an article I'd read when I did my sociology degree. And I had and I looked it up and found the article because isn't it marvellous how you can do that now? Now, I had I didn't even wasn't even aware I knew that any longer. I couldn't remember that article until somebody had said something. and I thought, oh, crikey, that sounds a bit like. So I'm thinking, you know, what? OK, it's there. They've said there is such a thing. I can't quibble with that because I'm not a neuroscientist. But what do I do with it? You know, I mean, I think that for me, I need to get them to learn deeply, but squabbling about whether or not or, or think about whether it's in their short or long term. I mean, you know, how am I going to know that? So that's the one thing. The other thing is you talked about the redundancy effect. And, you know, I've heard you say something about I think you I think actually it was in Bernie Westcott's interview when you talked about display. Oh, yes. Yes. So I think for me. That's it taken to extremes. So whereas I am going to strip out things that I think are going to interfere 
with that piece of learning that I want to draw their attention to. I think there is a problem with cognitive science generally, which I referred to earlier about it being about being applied, just applied, you know, taken to extremes is one way of putting it. So, I mean, Piaget was taken to extremes here. He, he came up with a, with, a, with, a, with a theory about how children learn. Everybody went, oh, that's how they learn. This is how we're going to do it. Do, you know, do, without any, you can't just plop a piece of a piece of um, uh, laboratory research, if you like, into the classroom, because classrooms are far too complex for that. The work of education is far too complex for that. It's, it's it, it, there's always a but what if for, in my head all the time. There's a but just a minute. What if? Um, yeah, I, I, I do. I, I do see and a couple of things. I have. One, I 100 percent agree that it can be taken too far. And I think I mean, I've held my hand up on this podcast to, to, to say that when I first started reading about things like this, I thought this was the answer. And you can I, th- I think that's yeah. almost like a natural human tendency, yeah, isn't it? You it read is, something. It matches, it matches your experience. And that's what yes. you know, that, that's it. You know, that's the thing, isn't it? Does this speak? To, does this speak to me? And that's the question I think we all need to be asking as teachers. Does this speak to me in what way? does it speak to me how does this match my personal experience i mean that's that's john mason isn't it treat all assertions as conjectures to be tested in Mm. our experience i mean that that has to be done because otherwise we end up just jumping on one hobby horse after another and that is my pet hate (laughs) for the silver bullet you know if we do it like this with 24 powerpoints or with a load of gold beans whichever it is you know you've got the answer they'll all be fine no they won't (laughs) and that's why i teach because because that's the richness of it if i wanted it to be plop 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 i'd go and be i don't know a solicitor like my daughter you know (laughs) i mean i think that, that that business of um yeah, it's, it, it has to research for me has to be about personal inquiry, whether that's with my, what my whether I'm looking at what my students are doing and I'm noticing and responding and evaluating continually or whether I'm reading something and I'm thinking, you know, I'm inquiring my personal inquiries. What, how does this match with what I'm finding? Well, that sounds a bit I don't think I agree with that. That doesn't fit. Oh, that's I've not thought of that before. That's what it is, rather than just thinking, oh, you know, here we have it. Cognitive load theory, working memory, long term memory, right, sorted. Yeah, that, I, I, I agree. I, I think you're right. And I'll just I'll just um, I'll just say I'll just say this and I'll give you a chance to re- re- respond if, if you want. I'll, I'll tell you just personally how it's how it's helped me. I just want to dig into this a, a little bit further. because I think this will be quite beneficial for, for, for listeners as well. who have perhaps read a little bit about it and, and, and want to know a little bit more or, or know my kind of thoughts on it. So. And what I quite like about it is a lot of it seems really, really obvious. But as I say, it's given me kind of a language and, yes. and a framework I to think that. think yes. about. So working like the concept of working memory and when you say that like people can only hold certain amounts in working memory and only think about so much at a time, that's obvious. It's really obvious. Mm. But yeah. again, for, for whatever reason, I, I it's not something that I and this makes me sound terrible, Helen, but it's not something I had explicitly thought about for probably about 12 years of, of teaching. I just thought some kids struggled, some kids didn't struggle with, yeah. with without actually thinking why what's going on here so Dan, Dan Willingham who I'm a big fan of what one of one of my favorite kind of things he says and I know people have quite a problem with this is that is that students remember what they think about and I think a better way of framing that Peps McRae says students remember what they attend to and it's been quite yeah. interesting I think you've used the phrase attend to um in, in this conversation now what I what I think 
where I think cognitive load theory helps, or my interpretation of it anyway, because God Almighty, I'm, I'm by no means an expert, <laughs> is is what I'm trying to do is if I if I believe that kids have a or anyone has a finite or limited capacity in their working memory, and I think I do believe that. I think you can people people can only hold so much at any one time. Then what I'm trying to do is and this is just a model, is try and fill up that working memory with as much of the right stuff as possible. And by the right stuff, I mean the things that are going to most likely mean that students are going to understand what they're working on at that particular time, whether it's me teaching something, whether it's students speaking to each other and so on and so forth. So that's where things like the redundancy effect help me, because I think to myself, okay, like you say there, if a pencil's falling under the table, they're going to be thinking a bit about that and that is is that's spare capacity or whatever we want to label it that that could be spent thinking about the mathematics the counting and so on and so forth the reason i go on about displays is because again i, I do this to be provocative but just to get to get people thinking about it that if there's a big colorful bright fancy display in kids peripheral vision or even right next to the board that they're looking at if students are thinking about that bright colorful display again it's some capacity that's dedicated away from what they could be thinking about and then things like the split attention effect which which helps inform me that whenever i do tech on the board I should integrate it more carefully with the diagram and I'll tell you a big one for me Helen as well that I was t absolutely terrible at and that's there'll be text on the board whether it's an equation or sentences and I'm speaking over the top saying something different so kids are trying to read the text and listen to me trying to process the dialogue that I'm saying over the top all these little things I I've just made slight tweaks that hopefully just make it mean that students can attend easier to the thing that I need them to be thinking about. Now that that's what I take from cognitive load theory. Does does that make any sense? And is there anything you'd object to it in that? Um, I think yes, it does. I mean, I think what 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 it's saying to me is about it's about is about attention. And obviously, mm. that word is 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 a John Ma is a John Mason yes. sort of term. I think it, it it's what you know. It's that business of what are these children, adults, whoever we are, likely to be attending to. What can I do to influence that? What hinders it? What helps it? And that is obviously that is something part that we we all have to take account of when we're planning, whether we do it. I think that, but in the end. They need to be able to attend wherever and whatever, don't they, to that thing. They need to be able to do it. So I'm reminded of um, a reception teacher who I've got a lot of respect for and somebody saying to her, why are you teaching them this outside? Because with all the noises and everything, mm. they're not going to be listening to you. And she said they need to be able to listen wherever they are. They need to be able to pay attention to me wherever they are. And I think that that's the balance, the other side of it is that if I strip it all out too much, we eventually, you know, we, 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 I'm taking away their ability to, I suppose in, in early years terms, it's called self-regulate, pay attention to what you need to pay attention to. And I think we can help them to do that. You know, we really can. And um, it, it's a bit why I think I, I think I, the, my other sort of pet hate at the moment is small steps. You know, I mean, I, you know, so I haven't got a problem with small steps. If I think about it, there are lots of small steps that make up this what looks like a seemingly easy thing, knowing six. There are lots and lots of small things you need to know, you know, for, for it. I, but that's to do with the maths. It's not about me. It's not about me 
um, breaking up something into tiny little steps that every child follows that route, they will get to the same destination at the same time. No, they won't. Their routes to that destination will be different. So it's a bit like that, I think. Um, but I don't... <laughs> I, I mean, there's, there's a whole nother hours and hours. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean I, what I did, what I would like, what I really wanted to mention was that if, if in terms of early years maths, the research that I think I am interested in, and I think as early years teachers, we, we probably need to be paying a lot of attention to, is the research on the role of recording, research into the role of pattern. That's the work of Papik and colleagues looking at how, how ch very young children recognising repeating units of pattern, how that influences their attainment in maths. That's important. We don't do enough of that. The role of geometry and spatial reasoning, that's sabotaging mental pictures, grouping, that, how important that is in children's attainment and achievement in mathematics. And uh, the role of um, effect, the effective and, and, and children's attitude to maths from a very young age. So you can't, I can't, you cannot separate the cognitive and the effective feelings of anxiety frustration pleasure and satisfaction all of those attached to mathematics we you know those are the bits of research that i think we should be looking at that i'm interested in looking at um and i think would would influence early years teaching and thus mathematics down the line positively if we took more time to investigate those but yeah you've you've sold me on that one helen that's fantastic <laughs> i'll tell you to end with um i just want to hand over to you for, for your big three so and i'll put links to these in the show notes what either three websites or blog posts would you would you uh, recommend our listeners check out well um i ah you see did i write down the ones i sent you um so yes there's there's um there's the ericsson early maths collaborative who are uh, superb if you want to find out anything more about, I mean, that's a completely rich, free resource based in the States. Um, I'm just uh, sorry. Um, and they they will give you videos of children working, ideas of activities. They give you uh, the research base for it. It's lots of reading, professional development or classroom stuff really good and i should just should say on that one helen i i checked your big three out after you sent them through that's absolutely brilliant that one isn't no, it it is I isn't thought it? It's fascinating yeah that. it is completely fascinating and if you've got a young child to look at that um you you get some understanding of where they're coming from instead of sort of saying to your child no don't say that's wrong <laughs> no, really really good um the and the other one that, that i didn't include was the learning trajectories one from Sarama and Clements who is also that's similar but it's tighter and more school based but very useful um, and then the blog I mentioned was Simon Gregg's blog who he teaches at the, at the International School in Toulouse and I was working with him last week um, and he co-wrote the Cuisinet book with, with us and he um, his blog following learning is incredible now he this year he's with eight and nine year olds and last year he was with Kate Keaton k2 which is four and five year olds and and he documents his journey um of the things that he gives them to do there is fascinating fascinating to watch the children's responses and lots of ideas to try out immediately in your classroom mm. uh did you look at that one yes i did yeah and i again i i knew of simon's name but i wasn't familiar with his work so that yeah. was uh, yeah absolutely brilliant there's, there's a lot of a lot of a lot of good stuff going on in Toulouse, isn't there? There's a, there's a lot of kind of um, yes. quite quite prominent maths educators based around there who seem to be doing some really interesting stuff. 
Well, they're not constrained by our curriculum. I think that's probably key. But yeah, yeah you're right. So he's good to follow on Twitter. And also on Twitter was the hashtag WODB, which is which one doesn't belong, which is this great thing for maths chats where you can um, you stick up a load of images. There's about usually about four images on a board and you say to children, right, which one doesn't belong? So there's a so that so here we have the whole essence of recognizing what's similar and what's different about the same things, the same pair of things and being able to distinguish and see that from both sides. So uh, very, very powerful. Did you have a look at that one? I did. Yes. And I've, I'm familiar, familiar with that. But again, it's one of those things that like, I thought, oh, yeah, I knew about that. But then I, I haven't used it for about a year or something. And it's just it's, it's brilliant to be reminded of that and to realize the kind of discussions that can have really kind of you can get kind of mathematical arguments going on in a, in a positive way between. students. Yes. So, yeah, that was a great one, that Helen. It's a really good one. And then finally, so, so I've said that it isn't. It isn't either of those, but a big three for me is is urging every teacher to join one professional body, one subject association, because a, the Association of Teachers of Maths for me has been the the one to nurture me from the early 80s. It, it, it challenges me. It supports me. And every teacher, it doesn't matter which one you belong to, I don't think. I think you have to belong to one. And, you know, because you're primary, you could well say, well, do I belong to a maths one or English one? I don't. I don't care. Just just go and join one. <laughs> they're independent. They're an independent subject association and with lots of professional support on there. Um, yeah, that, that would be my final thing, I think. But that's fantastic. And just, just before I wrap up, Helen, I mean, you've been a great kind of marketer throughout this as well. I'm going to need to take tips from you because you, you've you managed to plug your book a couple of times. But I wanted to just <laughs> give you an opportunity just to tell people about your, your book and also the course that, that you run as well. So I think both are well, they're directly relevant to what we spoke about today. So do you want to just say a couple of words about your book and a couple of days about the, the course as well? I think the book, which is jointly written with Mike Ollerton and Simon Gregg, firstly, we don't get any royalties from it. So I'm just going to say that now. But we, do, we don't take any royalties. They all go back to the ATM. So I'm not plugging it for my own. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, we run a course attached to uh, we run a course for ATM based, which we do get paid for, <laughs> which is based on the ideas from the book. Um, and that's really about looking at um, how exactly what I've been describing, the approach of um the approach of taking uh, taking a piece of equipment in this case and looking at how you, that can be used right the way through every age group for aspects of maths and it's very practical and hands-on but I wouldn't before you go completely I would be really be kicking myself if I don't mention the characteristics of effective learning which I will also give you a link to which is statutory these characteristics are statutory in the early years for young children to be assessed against and then they disappear at the end of reception and these and I think they are key to us nurturing um, good mathematicians and if we had this running right the way through school I think we'd be better off so the there are three characteristics one of them is playing and exploring one is active learning and motivation and the other is creating and thinking critically so I'm just going to look at that third one with you, Craig. And the Ooh. third one says, and I'm going to read a little bit of it. And you tell me if this matches up with, say, think about teaching A-level maths, okay? okay? Okay. Okay. Making links and noticing patterns, making predictions, testing their ideas, developing ideas of grouping, sequences, cause and effect. Yeah, I'll tell you what, if, if, if my year 12s and 13s could do that, I'd be laughing. So, yeah, that, you, you that sounds good. You are not the only secondary teacher that said that to me, but not many people are aware of it. And I, I've worked with staff where we've taken this these characteristics of effective learning, which come, as I say, from the early years foundation stage. And we've how do we continue to work on these 
right the way through to 11. You know, what are we doing? How are we how are we structuring our teaching? So these are integral to what we do. So I, I, just, I want to put a link to that in case anybody's interested in looking at that, because what a shame they just disappear at the end of reception. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you can send the link to that and, and any of the other things we've chatted about, Helen, because I know listeners will definitely be keen to be, be, be checking those out and all those links will be on the, on the show notes page. Well, just to, just to wrap up for, from me, just, just a couple of things to say. So first off, I'll thank you for, for giving up your time this morning to, to speak to me. I'm going to be honest, Helen, I was nervous about this one and I was nervous for, for two reasons, really. The first is the obvious one that I'm, I'm well out of my comfort zone and um, certainly um, for kind of early years, but that's a conscious decision I've made that I want to I want to push myself because as a teacher we're, we're just we're, a secondary teacher it's just one part of a child's learning journey and if you don't know what's gone on before like again you're just a, a huge huge disadvantage and it's I didn't just want to know kind of what where students have kind of come from in their maths learning but also like how they've been taught what's worked well because again there's just some amazing practices going on that I think everyone can learn from so but I was nervous because I thought oh god almighty um, I don't know anything I'm, I'm clue as, as you've listened to the Bernie episode I don't know anything about manipulatives left right and center and I the thought of trying to introduce some of these basic concepts to, well concepts that I think are basic is just so kind of alien to me so so thank you for that I mean, I've, I've absolutely loved it and I was also nervous because I thought dare I mention anything like cognitive science or anything I'm going to need to get called Dylan in for backup or something like that but I, th I think we've, we've navigated that and hopefully found some some common ground but I just wanted to say Helen that uh, honestly I've loved every minute of this conversation and I hope and I, I think I think the listeners will agree with me I hope you'll come back on again and um, sometime in the near future because we've we've just scratched the surface here and I, th I think there's there's so much more fertile ground for us for us to go to so uh, Helen thank you so much for joining us today thank you Craig I'd like to say thank you to you you're very I mean I was nervous <laughs> well I think it is a, it's a funny but it's a very good situation to be put in from my point of view and I admire you for you know to taking it on the chin and saying I don't know anything about it you do know, everybody knows something about something and yeah it's been fascinating so thank you very much so there you have it there was my interview with Dr Helen Williams Whew, I thought things were going to get a little bit hairy towards the end there when I dived into the cognitive load theory territory. But we both come out of it in one piece and I can only speak for myself, but I flipping loved that conversation. I could have spoke to Helen for another hour, another two hours and, and just kind of gobbled up everything that she had to say because I found it an absolutely fascinating conversation. And I really hope you enjoyed it and got as much out of it as I did. And I'll tell you what, once again, it's just caused me to reflect just how flipping lucky I am to be able to speak to these people and that these people give up their time and, and share their expertise with me. That they're, they're so intelligent, so articulate, so passionate about all the different areas that interest them. So we have here, we have Helen speaking about early years and manipulatives. Uh, I've been blown away by the response to the uh, Becky Allen episode and um, speaking about workload, happiness and well-being. We've had Helen Hindle and um, speaking about mixed attainment teaching we've had Chris Bolton who's absolutely convinced that the other ways that the way forward with Engelman and, di and direct instruction I, I just love learning from these these wonderful guests that, that give up the time to come on the show the only problem is my head flipping wrecks after it it's just absolutely spinning around so anyway 
what am I going to reflect on um, having spoken to Helen? Um, what I've tried to do is just pick out a few areas that, that are different to areas that I've reflected on from previous guests. <laughs> so the first is, uh, this is something that I've thought for many years, but flipping out, now it is 100% clear. I don't think I could teach early years. I'm not convinced I could teach primary. I think I could just about survive in a year five or year six maths lesson, by no means as good as an experienced year five or year six maths teacher. But in terms of having to flip and teach English and then a bit of science and a bit of geography and all this, absolutely no chance, absolutely no chance. But put me in an early years maths lesson, whoa, I, I, am, I am completely out of my depth. And it got me thinking, is it a completely different job teaching early years and those kind of key stage one, so kind of year two, year three, year four, is that a completely different job to being a maths teacher teaching year seven, year eight, year nine, and so on and so forth? Well, often I've wondered whether it's a different job teaching, let's say year seven compared to year 11, because it's not just that the maths topics become more complex as students get older. The students themselves change. They mature. We've got all the flipping adolescents and hormones floating around left, right and center and, and all, the, all the trouble that that brings. But it still essentially feels pretty much the same. I'm teaching maths to students and the techniques that I use, and I'm going to reflect on these in a second, generally tend to work just as well with year seven and year, uh, as they do with year 11 students and even sixth form, even year 12 and 13 students. But take that same gap in ages and kind of transfer it down a bit. So instead of looking at um, year, uh, 11 year olds and 16 year olds, let's compare 11 year olds to six year olds. Well, my God, that's when it starts to feel completely different. And again, it's not just because the maths is different. It's students' maturity, students' kind of experience with the world. I, I don't know if this, this is the right phrase, but their kind of cognitive development. And I just think all the tools that I rely on I'm just not convinced that they'd work anymore. Um, but I tell you what, it feels to me like an experience that every secondary school teacher should go through at some point because you heard how clueless I was with, with when Helen's describing the way she teaches. And I just think that it's, it's something we have to experience because after all, as secondary school teachers, when, when we pick up the kids when they're age 11, surely it's got to be advantageous to have a sense of the mathematical journey that they've been, they've come upon. And I think all too often in the past, I've been guilty of thinking, right, well, this is where the proper mathematical journey of these kids begins. September of year seven, this is where the proper stuff starts. But my God, they've done a hell of a lot of maths before then and been taught it in some absolutely wonderful ways. They're, they're far more sophisticated than, than I've appreciated in the past. And without an understanding of that, and without experience of working with those kids, I don't think I can do my job as well. But back to, back to the tools, back to my kind of tools of the trade that I've developed over the last probably couple of years or so. And, and regular listeners to the show will have heard these being developed. And, and if you've read my book, you, you'll have seen them. Would some of these tools work with the kind of students, the ages of students that, that Helen has an area of expertise in? Well, spacing. Let's take spacing for one. Helen does that intuitively. You heard her mentioning that. She's always calling back to the, the, the skills that have been previously taught, whether it's asking students to gather together a number of pencils or discussing um, the concept of numbers or, or mental addition and subtraction. It's always coming back. I think it's slightly more difficult in secondary 
because say we've taught something like trigonometry, you have to make a conscious decision to keep regularly introducing that to lessons over, over periods of time. So that I think that requires slightly more kind of uh, complex planning to, to get that in into starters, low stakes quizzes, homeworks, um, or interleave it into different questions. But I think we can certainly learn from, from um, Helen and what primary colleagues do in terms of high value topics. And by high value topics, I'm meaning the ones that come up all the time. Number operations, fractions, decimals, negatives, place value. They're the ones that can be brought into pretty much every lesson. And that's been one conscious change I've made this year to make sure every lesson features at least two to three of these high value topics. And again, that can be starters, low stakes quizzes, homeworks, discussions, um, interleave it into different topics and so on and so forth. What about variation? <laughs> now, it's a dangerous word for me to start talking about variation. Um, but again, I, I think that's something that Helen's just doing intuitively through her questions. Whenever she's got a fixed number of the, of the beads, the beans, sorry, the gold sprayed beans, and she's asking students questions, she's gonna be just changing one thing, holding the rest constant and getting students to predict what, what difference that's gonna to make to discuss, to focus on what's changed, what's stayed the same. So I think that concept of, of directing students' attention to the critical features or critical structure of a problem, of a question, of a concept, by the careful control of the variables, for want of a better phrase, I think that's something that could work. I think that that's universal. Um, diagnostic questions, possibly. I mean, there's going to be kind of literacy issues and, and, and so on and so forth. But again, the concept of, of, of learning something from students' wrong answers, not just the thinking they're right, they're wrong, but they've got the wrong answer and it's probably because of this. I think that's going to work. I think that's going to work. Um, <laughs> SSDD problems, I'm not so sure, but again, I mean, I don't know enough about it, but again, I would imagine it's going to be a crucial area of development that once students have learned to their addition bonds and subtraction bonds and basic times tables, it's going to then be important for them to be able to, to decide when to use those various skills or when to apply those various concepts. You don't want them just doing... 20 addition problems in a block and the next lesson 20 subtraction problems. Again, it's it's deciding when it's appropriate to add, when it's appropriate to subtract. And that's the whole concept of uh, same surface, different deep problems. So maybe that would work. So, silent teacher? I'm not convinced. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's, is that appropriate for, for students of that age? Can, can they stay silent for, 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 for that period of time? Again, this is my naivety and my lack of experience. But I don't know, that's one of my strongest teaching tools, uh, my use of silent teacher is, particularly in the last kind of 12 months or so. I, I don't know if that, that's gonna be redundant um, with, with students of that age. Um, so they're my kind of reflections in terms of my inability to teach primary and, and how I'd be out of my depth. But I just wanna return the, uh, back to again, why I feel it's so, so, so important to have these conversations with people like Helen, but also on a local level, for secondary school teachers to go into primary schools, not just to model how to teach lessons, but to learn. And likewise, primary school teachers to come into secondary schools, not just for a visit, but again, to learn and to work together. Because as I said before, maths is a journey. 
It starts before kids even go to school and it's continuing outside of lessons with their experiences, but it goes right through to from age three, right through to 18 and potentially beyond. And, and for those of us who are lucky enough to aid students in that journey by, by teaching them, it can only be a good thing to be aware of what's come before and what's coming after. So um, as a secondary school teacher, I have to know what's going, what's happened at Key Stage 2 and ideally what's happened at Key Stage 1 in early years, just as I feel it's advantageous if I know what's going to happen at GCSE and also what's going to happen at A-level. And that's why I always say to, to teachers who don't yet teach A-level, get yourself into an A-level maths lesson. Even if you feel a little uncomfortable and out of your depth, because it's so, so, so important that you see where the maths that you're teaching at key stage three, so age 11 to 14, where that goes when kids get to 17 and 18 is so, so, so important to, to see both sides of the journey, not just be kind of focused on the individual kind of phase that you're teaching. It can only be a good thing. And the last thing I just wanted to reflect on is manipulatives. I'm becoming a bit of a manipulative convert at the moment. It started with my conversation with Bernie Westacott, and it's, it's only continued now having, having spoken to Helen. Um, but I'll tell you the key point, and Helen brought this home, and I want to emphasise this, and I think if I hadn't heard this lesson, I can see me being guilty of this. Manipulatives cannot be seen as a tool to use only when you're struggling. I'm going to say that one more time, more to remind myself than anything. Manipulatives cannot be seen as a tool for students to use only when they're struggling. So it can't be a case of, right, if you're stuck on anything, there's some manipulatives that you might find helpful at the back because then there's a stigma attached to it. They And, and manipulatives almost take kind of a back seat that they seem to be seen as kind of help that you need if you don't fully understand it, as opposed to what I'm now starting to see that these are a key part of a student's journey towards deep, deep, deep understanding of a particular concept. And it shouldn't just be the case that you start off with manipulatives until you've got your head around summer and then you get rid of them and then you just work all in the abstract. You can keep coming back to the manipulatives, but not just when you're struggling, but when, when you want to push yourself a bit further, when you want to see something from a different perspective. And I liked what Helen said there, that even when students can do something in the abstract, challenging them, well, can you can you represent it using these, I'm going to be saying something I don't understand now, can you represent it using these Cuisinaire rods or Numicon or whatever it is with these counters, with these beads? Can you show it me in two ways, three ways? And that isn't taking a step back, that's taking a step forward, different representations. So there shouldn't be any stigma attached to using manipulatives indeed they should be celebrated and they should always be available and if like me one of your barriers to being to, to using manipulatives has not only been your lack of knowledge like I certainly suffer from but also from just lack of equipment because they're not as widely available in, in secondary schools you might want to get started by using some of them um, the wonderful virtual manipulatives that Jonathan Hall has, has put together as part of his MathSpot website so just go on MathSpot and he's got a whole manipulative um, section now. You've got some of the negative number counters that we, uh, myself and Bernie discussed. You've got the Cuisinaire rods. You've got all sorts going on there that that hopefully will be a kind of a way into this. And I've certainly been kind of just experimenting, just using the negative number counters with the positive one and the negative one and, and the idea of 
putting a pair together, a positive and a negative, a zero pair, like we discussed with 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 Bernie, and that's that's starting to to kind of bear fruit, and I think that's almost kind of a a smaller barrier to entry for me as a teacher than to do an entire lesson where kids have got these manipulatives. But I think it leads, it's going to lead me down the path towards that, if that makes sense. So I hope that big ramble from me there, there made some kind of sense. And, and I hope you get a sense of just how kind of blown away and how happy I was with that conversation with Helen. It it's, it's really has opened my eyes. And I think it's so, so, so important, as I say, that teachers get a sense of what's come before and what's coming after in, in a student's mathematical journey. So all that remains for me to do is to thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. Um, a huge thank you to Dr. Helen Williams for giving up her time and, and speaking to me and putting up with my inane, stupid questions. And a big, big thank you to you, my loyal listeners, for keeping on listening to these shows. Um, it makes me so happy when an episode seems to go down as well with listeners as it has done with me. Um, so please, if, you, if you've enjoyed an episode, if you haven't left a review, um, either on iTunes, Pod, Bean Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast from, please do so. But also help spread the word, whether that's sending a tweet about an episode that you enjoyed, or whether it's just telling a colleague, hey, check this episode out, particularly if they've never used a podcast before. Just get them set up, show them how they can listen to it in the car or going for a walk or something like that, and say, check out this episode first. Check out Dr. Helen Williams. Check out Becky Allen. Check out Chris Bolton. Check out Danny Quinn. Check out Dylan William. Pick your favorite episode and get them going. Tell you what, it's a cheap Christmas present. That's the way I'm looking at it now. Give the gift of a podcast episode to your loved one for Christmas. Maybe I'll try that with my wife, see how that goes down. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I am back with some absolute cracking episodes over the next few weeks and months. You take care of yourselves and bye for now.